Chapter 19 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 19 The Shadow of Monsieur Fouquet. D'Artagnan, still confused and oppressed by the conversation he had just had with the king, could not resist asking himself if he were really in possession of his senses, if he were really and truly at Vaux, if he, D'Artagnan, were really the captain of the musketeers, and Monsieur Fouquet the owner of the chateau in which Louis the Fourteenth was at that moment partaking of his hospitality. These reflections were not those of a drunken man, although everything was in prodigal profusion at Vaux, and the surintendant's wines had met with a distinguished reception at the fete. The Gascon, however, was a man of calm self-possession, and no sooner did he touch his bright steel blade than he knew how to adopt morally the cold, keen weapon as his guide of action. "'Well,' he said, as he quitted the royal apartment, "'I seem now to be mixed up historically with the destinies of the king and of the minister. It will be written that Monsieur d'Artagnan, a younger son of a Gascon family, placed his hand on the shoulder of Monsieur Nicolas Fouquet, the surintendant of the finances of France. My descendants, if I have any, will flatter themselves with the distinction which this arrest will confer, just as the members of the de Loigne family have done with regard to the estates of the poor Marechal d'Ancre. But the thing is, how best to execute the King's directions in a proper manner? Any man would know how to say to Monsieur Fouquet, your sword, monsieur, but is not every one who would be able to take care of Monsieur Fouquet without others knowing anything about it. How am I to manage, then, so that Monsieur le Surintendant pass from the height of favour to the direst disgrace, that Vaux be turned into a dungeon for him, that after having been steeped to his lips, as it were, in all the perfumes and incense of Ahasuerus, he is transferred to the gallows of Haman, in other words, of Engarand de Marigny. And at this reflection D'Artagnan's brow became clouded with perplexity. The musketeer had certain scruples on the matter, it must be admitted. To deliver up to death, for not a doubt existed that Louis hated Fouquet mortally, the man who had just shown himself so delightful and charming a host in every way, was a real insult to one's conscience. It almost seems, said D'Artagnan to himself, that if I am not a poor, mean, miserable fellow, I should let Monsieur Fouquet know the opinion the king has about him. Yet, if I betray my master's secret, I shall be a false-hearted, treacherous knave, a traitor, too, a crime provided for and punishable by military laws, so much so, indeed, that twenty times, in former days when wars were rife, I have seen many a miserable fellow strung up to a tree for doing, in but a small degree, what my scruples counsel me to undertake upon a great scale now. No, I think that a man of true readiness of wit ought to get out of this difficulty with more skill than that. And now, let us admit that I do possess a little readiness of invention. It is not at all certain, though, for— after having for forty years absorbed so large a quantity, I shall be lucky if there were to be a pistole's worth left. 
D'Artagnan buried his head in his hands, tore at his moustache in sheer vexation, and added, "'What can be the reason of M. Fouquet's disgrace?' There seem to be three good ones. The first, because M. Colbert doesn't like him. The second, because he wished to fall in love with Mademoiselle de la Valliere. And lastly, because the king likes M. Colbert and loves Mademoiselle de la Valliere. Oh, he is lost. But shall I put my foot on his neck, I of all men, when he is falling a prey to the intrigues of a pack of women and clerks? For shame! If he be dangerous, I will lay him low enough. If, however, he be only persecuted, I will look on. I have come to such a decisive determination that neither king nor living man shall change my mind. If Athos were here, he would do as I have done. Therefore, instead of going, in cold blood, up to M. Fouquet, and arresting him off-hand and shutting him up altogether, I will try and conduct myself like a man who understands what good manners are. People will talk about it, of course, but they shall talk well of it, I am determined." And D'Artagnan, drawing by a gesture peculiar to himself his shoulder-belt over his shoulder, went straight off to M. Fouquet, who, after he had taken leave of his guests, was preparing to retire for the night and to sleep tranquilly after the triumphs of the day. The air was still perfumed or infected, whichever way it may be considered, with the odours of the torches and the fireworks. The wax-lights were dying away in their sockets, the flowers fell unfastened from the garlands, the groups of dancers and courtiers were separating in the salons. Surrounded by his friends, who complimented him and received his flattering remarks in return, the surintendant half-closed his wearied eyes. He longed for rest and quiet, he sank upon the bed of laurels which had been heaped up for him for so many days past. It might almost have been said that he seemed bowed beneath the weight of the new debts which he had incurred for the purpose of giving the greatest possible honour to this fete. Fouquet had just retired to his room, still smiling, but more than half asleep. He could listen to nothing more. He could hardly keep his eyes open. His bed seemed to possess a fascinating and irresistible attraction for him. The god Morpheus, the presiding deity of the dome painted by Lebrun, had extended his influence over the adjoining rooms, and showered down his most sleep-inducing poppies upon the master of the house. Fouquet, almost entirely alone, was being assisted by his valet de chambre to undress, when M. d'Artagnan appeared at the entrance of the room. D'Artagnan had never been able to succeed in making himself common at the court, and notwithstanding he was seen everywhere and on all occasions, he never failed to produce an effect wherever and whenever he made his appearance. Such is the happy privilege of certain natures, which in that respect resemble either thunder or lightning. Every one recognizes them, but their appearance never fails to arouse surprise and astonishment, and whenever they occur, the impression is always left that the last was the most conspicuous or most important. "'What, Monsieur d'Artagnan?' said Fouquet, who had already taken his right arm out of the sleeve of his doublet. "'At your service,' replied the musketeer. "'Come in, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan.' "'Thank you.' "'Have you come to criticize the fete?' 
You are ingenious enough in your criticisms, I know. By no means. Are not your men looked after properly? In every way. You are not comfortably lodged, perhaps? Nothing could be better. In that case, I have to thank you for being so amiably disposed, and I must not fail to express my obligations to you for all your flattering kindness. These words were as much as to say, My dear D'Artagnan, pray go to bed, since you have a bed to lie down on, and let me do the same. D'Artagnan did not seem to understand it. "'Are you going to bed already?' he said to the superintendent. "'Yes. Have you anything to say to me?' "'Nothing, monsieur, nothing at all. You sleep in this room, then?' "'Yes, as you see.' "'You have given a most charming fete to the king.' "'Do you think so?' "'Oh, beautiful!' "'Is the king pleased?' "'Enchanted.' "'Did he desire you to say as much to me?' "'He would not choose so unworthy a messenger, Monseigneur.' "'You do not do yourself justice, Monsieur d'Artagnan.' "'Is that your bed there?' "'Yes, but why do you ask? Are you not satisfied with your own?' "'May I speak frankly to you?' most assuredly well then i am not fouquet started and then replied will you take my room monsieur d'artagnan what deprive you of it monseigneur never what am i to do then allow me to share yours with you fouquet looked at the musketeer fixedly ah ah he said, "'You have just left the king.' "'I have, Monseigneur.' "'And the king wishes you to pass the night in my room?' "'Monseigneur.' "'Very well, Monsieur d'Artagnan, very well. You are the master here.' "'I assure you, Monseigneur, that I do not wish to abuse—' Fouquet turned to his valet, and said, "'Leave us.' When the man had left, he said to D'Artagnan, "'You have something to say to me?' "'I?' "'A man of your superior intelligence cannot have come to talk with a man like myself, at such an hour as the present, without grave motives.' "'Do not interrogate me.' "'On the contrary. What do you want with me?' nothing more than the pleasure of your society come into the garden then said the superintendent suddenly or into the park no replied the musketeer hastily no why the fresh air come admit at once that you arrest me said the superintendent to the captain never said the latter you intend to look after me, then? Yes, Monseigneur, I do, upon my honour. Upon your honour? Ah, that is quite another thing. So I am to be arrested in my own house. Do not say such a thing. On the contrary, I will proclaim it aloud. 
If you do so, I shall be compelled to request you to be silent. Very good. Violence towards me, and in my own house, too. We do not seem to understand one another at all. Stay a moment. There is a chessboard there. We will have a game, if you have no objections. Monsieur d'Artagnan, I am in disgrace, then? Not at all, but... I am prohibited, I suppose, from withdrawing from your sight? I do not understand a word you are saying, Monseigneur, and if you wish me to withdraw, tell me so. My dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, your mode of action is enough to drive me mad. I was almost sinking for want of sleep, but you have completely awakened me. I shall never forgive myself, I am sure. And if you wish to reconcile me with myself, why, go to sleep in your bed in my presence, and I shall be delighted. I am under surveillance, I see. I will leave the room if you say any such thing. You are beyond my comprehension. Good night, Monseigneur, said D'Artagnan, as he pretended to withdraw. Fouquet ran after him. I will not lie down, he said. Seriously, and since you refuse to treat me as a man, and since you finesse with me, I will try and set you at bay, as a hunter does a wild boar. Bah! cried D'Artagnan, pretending to smile. I shall order my horses and set off for Paris, said Fouquet, sounding the captain of the musketeers. If that be the case, Monseigneur, it is very difficult— you will arrest me, then? No, but I shall go along with you. That is quite sufficient, Monsieur d'Artagnan, returned Fouquet, coldly. It was not for nothing you acquired your reputation as a man of intelligence and resource. But with me all this is quite superfluous. Let us come to the point. Do me a service. Why? Do you arrest me? What have I done? Oh, I know nothing about what you may have done, but I do not arrest you. This evening, at least. This evening, said Fouquet, turning pale. But to-morrow? It is not to-morrow just yet, Monseigneur. Who can ever answer for the morrow? Quick, quick, Captain! Let me speak to Monsieur d'Herblay. Alas, that is quite impossible, Monseigneur. I have strict orders to see that you hold no communication with any one. With Monsieur d'Herblay, Captain, with your friend. Monseigneur, is Monsieur d'Herblay the only person with whom you ought to be prevented holding any communication? Fouquet coloured, and then assuming an air of resignation, he said, You are right, Monsieur. You have taught me a lesson I ought not to have evoked. A fallen man cannot assert his right to anything, even from those whose fortunes he may have made. For a still stronger reason, he cannot claim anything from those to whom he may never have had the happiness of doing a service. Monseigneur! It is perfectly true, Monsieur d'Artagnan. You have always acted in the most admirable manner towards me. In such a manner, indeed, 
as most becomes the man who is destined to arrest me. You, at least, have never asked me anything. Monsieur, replied the Gascon, touched by his eloquent and noble tone of grief, will you, I ask it as a favour, pledge me your word as a man of honour that you will not leave this room? What is the use of it, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, since you keep watch and ward over me? Do you suppose I should contend against the most valiant sword in the kingdom? It is not that at all, Monseigneur, but that I am going to look for Monsieur d'Herblay, and consequently to leave you alone. Fouquet uttered a cry of delight and surprise. To look for Monsieur d'Herblay! To leave me alone! he exclaimed, clapping his hands together. "'Which is Monsieur Dublay's room? The blue room, is it not?' "'Yes, my friend, yes.' "'Your friend. Thank you for that word, Monseigneur. You conferred upon me to-day, at least, if you have never done so before.' "'Ah! You have saved me.' "'It will take a good ten minutes to go from hence to the blue room, and to return?' said d'artagnan nearly so and then to wake aramis who sleeps very soundly when he is asleep i put that down at another five minutes making a total of fifteen minutes absence and now monseigneur give me your word that you will not in any way attempt to make your escape and that when i return i shall find you here again i give it monsieur replied fouquet with an expression of the warmest and deepest gratitude. D'Artagnan disappeared. Fouquet looked at him as he quitted the room, waited with a feverish impatience until the door was closed behind him, and as soon as it was shut, flew to his keys, opened two or three secret doors concealed in various articles of furniture in the room, looked vainly for certain papers, which doubtless he had left at Saint-Mande, and which he seemed to regret not having found in them then hurriedly seizing hold of letters, contracts, papers, writings, he heaped them up into a pile, which he burnt in the extremest haste upon the marble hearth of the fireplace, not even taking time to draw from the interior of it the vases and pots of flowers with which it was filled. As soon as he had finished, like a man who had just escaped an imminent danger, and whose strength abandons him as soon as the danger is past, he sank down, completely overcome, on a couch. When D'Artagnan returned, he found Fouquet in the same position. The worthy musketeer had not the slightest doubt that Fouquet, having given his word, would not even think of failing to keep it. But he had thought it most likely that Fouquet would turn his, D'Artagnan's, absence to the best advantage in getting rid of all the papers, memorandums, and contracts, which might possibly render his position which was even now serious enough, more dangerous than ever. And so, lifting up his head like a dog who has regained the scent, he perceived an odour resembling smoke he had relied on finding in the atmosphere, and having found it, made a movement of his head in token of satisfaction. As D'Artagnan entered, Fouquet, on his side, raised his head, and not one of D'Artagnan's movements escaped him and then the looks of the two men met, and they both saw that they had understood each other without exchanging a syllable. "'Well?' 
asked Fouquet, the first to speak. "'And Monsieur d'Herblay?' "'Upon my word, Monseigneur,' replied D'Artagnan, "'Monsieur d'Herblay must be desperately fond of walking out at night, and composing verses by moonlight in the park of Vaux, with some of your poets in all probability, for he is not in his own room.' "'What? Not in his own room?' cried Fouquet, whose last hope thus escaped him, for unless he could ascertain in what way the bishop of Vannes could assist him, he perfectly well knew that he could expect assistance from no other quarter. "'Or, indeed,' continued D'Artagnan, "'if he is in his own room, he has a very good reason for not answering.' "'But surely you did not call him in such a manner that he could have heard you?' You can hardly suppose, Monseigneur, that having already exceeded my orders, which forbade me leaving you a single moment, you can hardly suppose, I say, that I should have been mad enough to rouse the whole house, and allow myself to be seen in the corridor of the Bishop of Vannes, in order that Monsieur Colbert might state with positive certainty that I gave you time to burn your papers. My papers? Of course. At least that is what I should have done in your place. When any one opens the door for me, I always avail myself of it. Yes, yes, and I thank you, for I have availed myself of it. And you have done perfectly right. Every man has his own peculiar secrets with which others have nothing to do. But let us return to Aramis, Monseigneur. Well, then, I tell you, you could not have called loud enough or Aramis would have heard you. However softly any one may call Aramis, Monseigneur, Aramis always hears when he has an interest in hearing. I repeat what I said before. Aramis was not in his own room, or Aramis had certain reasons for not recognizing my voice, of which I am ignorant, and of which you may be even ignorant yourself, notwithstanding your liege man is his greatness the Lord Bishop of Vannes. Fouquet drew a deep sigh, rose from his seat, took three or four turns in his room, and finished by seating himself, with an expression of extreme dejection, upon his magnificent bed with velvet hangings and costliest lace. D'Artagnan looked at Fouquet with feelings of the deepest and sincerest pity. "'I have seen a good many men arrested in my life,' said the musketeer, sadly. I have seen both Monsieur de Saint-Mar and Monsieur de Chalet arrested, though I was very young then. I have seen Monsieur de Conde arrested with the princes. I have seen Monsieur de Retz arrested. I have seen Monsieur Broussel arrested. Stay a moment, Monseigneur. It is disagreeable to have to say, but the very one of all those whom you most resemble at this moment was that poor fellow Broussel. You were very near doing as he did, putting your dinner-napkin in your portfolio, and wiping your mouth with your papers. Mordio! Monseigneur Fouquet, a man like you ought not to be dejected in this manner. Suppose your friends saw you. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' replied the surintendant, with a smile full of gentleness, "'you do not understand me.' It is precisely because my friends are not looking on that I am as you see me now. I do not live, 
exist even, isolated from others. I am nothing when left to myself. Understand that throughout my whole life I have passed every moment of my time in making friends, whom I hoped to render my stay and support. In times of prosperity, all these cheerful, happy voices, rendered so through and by my means, formed in my honour a concert of praise and kindly actions. In the least disfavour, these humbler voices accompanied in harmonious accents the murmur of my own heart. Isolation I have never yet known. Poverty, a phantom I have sometimes beheld, clad in rags, awaiting me at the end of my journey through life. Poverty has been the spectre with which many of my own friends have trifled for years past, which they poetize and caress, and which has attracted me towards them. Poverty! I accept it, acknowledge it, receive it, as a disinherited sister. For poverty is neither solitude, nor exile, nor imprisonment. Is it likely I shall ever be poor, with such friends as Pelisson, as La Fontaine, as Molière, with such a mistress as, oh, if you knew how utterly lonely and desolate I feel at this moment, and how you, who separate me from all I love, seem to resemble the image of solitude, of annihilation, death itself. But I have already told you, Monsieur Fouquet, replied D'Artagnan, moved to the depths of his soul, that you are woefully exaggerating. The king likes you. No, no, said Fouquet, shaking his head. Monsieur Colbert hates you. Monsieur Colbert, what does that matter to me? He will ruin you. Ah, I defy him to do that for I am ruined already. At this singular confession of the superintendent, D'Artagnan cast his glance all around the room, and although he did not open his lips, Fouquet understood him so thoroughly that he added, "'What can be done with such wealth of substance as surrounds us, when a man can no longer cultivate his taste for the magnificent?' Do you know what good the greater part of the wealth and the possessions which we rich enjoy confer upon us? Merely to disgust us, by their very splendour even, with everything which does not equal it. Vaux, you will say, and the wonders of Vaux. What of it? What boot these wonders? If I am ruined— how shall I fill with water the urns which my naiads bear in their arms, or force the air into the lungs of my tritons? To be rich enough, Monsieur d'Artagnan, a man must be too rich. D'Artagnan shook his head. Oh, I know very well what you think, replied Fouquet quickly. If Vaux were yours, you would sell it, and would purchase an estate in the country— an estate which should have woods, orchards, and land attached, so that the estate should be made to support its master. With forty millions you might—' Ten millions,' interrupted D'Artagnan. "'Not a million, my dear captain. 
no one in France is rich enough to give two millions for Vaux, and to continue to maintain it as I have done. No one could do it. No one would know how. Well, said D'Artagnan, in any case, a million is not abject misery. It is not far from it, my dear monsieur. But you do not understand me. No, I will not sell my residence at Vaux. I will give it to you, if you like. And Fouquet accompanied these words with a movement of the shoulders to which it would be impossible to do justice. Give it to the king. You will make a better bargain. The king does not require me to give it to him, said Fouquet. He will take it away from me with the most absolute ease and grace, if it pleases him to do so. And that is the very reason I should prefer to see it perish. Do you know, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that if the king did not happen to be under my roof, I would take this candle, go straight to the dome, and set fire to a couple of huge chests of fusees and fireworks which are in reserve there, and would reduce my palace to ashes. Bah! said the musketeer, negligently. At all events, you would not be able to burn the gardens, and that is the finest feature of the place. And yet, resumed Fouquet thoughtfully, what was I saying? Great heavens! Burn Vaux! Destroy my palace! But Vaux is not mine. These wonderful creations are, it is true, the property, as far as sense of enjoyment goes, of the man who is paid for them. But as far as duration is concerned, they belong to those who created them. Vaux belongs to Le Brun, to Le Notre, to Pelisson, to Le Vaux, to La Fontaine, to Molière. Vaux belongs to posterity, in fact. You see, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that my very house has ceased to be my own. That is all well and good, said d'Artagnan. The idea is agreeable enough, and I recognize Monsieur Fouquet himself in it. That idea, indeed, makes me forget that poor fellow Broussel altogether. And I now fail to recognize in you the whining complaints of that old frondeur. If you are ruined, monsieur, look at the affair manfully, for you too, Mortiot, belong to posterity, and have no right to lessen yourself in any way. Stay a moment. Look at me. I who seem to exercise in some degree a kind of superiority over you, because I am arresting you. Fate, which distributes their different parts to the comedians of this world, accorded me a less agreeable and less advantageous part to fill than yours has been. I am one of those who think that the parts which kings and powerful nobles are called upon to act are infinitely of more worth than the parts of beggars or lackeys. It is far better on the stage, on the stage, I mean, of another theatre than the theatre of this world. It is far better to wear a fine coat and to talk a fine language than to walk the boards shod with a pair of old shoes, or to get one's backbone gently polished by a hearty dressing with a stick. In one word, you have been a prodigal with money. You have ordered and been obeyed, have been steeped to the lips in enjoyment. 
while I have dragged my tether after me, have been commanded and have obeyed, and have drudged my life away. Well, although I may seem of such trifling importance beside you, Monseigneur, I do declare to you that the recollection of what I have done serves me as a spur, and prevents me from bowing my old head too soon. I shall remain unto the very end a trooper, and when my turn comes, I shall fall perfectly straight, all in a heap, still alive, after having selected my place beforehand. Do as I do, Monsieur Fouquet. You will not find yourself the worse for it. A fall happens only once in a lifetime to men like yourself, and the chief thing is to take it gracefully when the chance presents itself. There is a Latin proverb. The words have escaped me, but I remember the sense of it very well, for I have thought over it more than once, which says, The end crowns the work. Fouquet rose from his seat, passed his arm around D'Artagnan's neck, and clasped him in a close embrace, whilst with the other hand he pressed his hand. "'An excellent homily,' he said, after a moment's pause. "'A soldier's, Monseigneur.' "'You have a regard for me in telling me all that.' "'Perhaps.' Fouquet resumed his pensive attitude once more, and then, a moment after, he said, "'Where can Monsieur de Blay be? I dare not ask you to send for him.' "'You would not ask me, because I would not do it, Monsieur Fouquet. People would learn it, and Aramis, who is not mixed up with the affair, might possibly be compromised and included in your disgrace.' "'I will wait here till daylight.' said Fouquet. Yes, that is best. What shall we do when daylight comes? I know nothing at all about it, Monseigneur. Monsieur d'Artagnan, will you do me a favour? Most willingly. You guard me, I remain. You are acting in the full discharge of your duty, I suppose? Certainly. Very good, then. Remain as close to me as my shadow, if you like, and I infinitely prefer such a shadow to any one else. D'Artagnan bowed to the compliment. But forget that you are Monsieur d'Artagnan, captain of the musketeers. Forget that I am Monsieur Fouquet, surintendant of the finances, and let us talk about my affairs." That is rather a delicate subject. Indeed? Yes, but for your sake, Monsieur Fouquet, I will do what may almost be regarded as an impossibility. Thank you. What did the King say to you? Nothing. Ah, is that the way you talk? The deuce! What do you think of my situation? I do not know. However, unless you have some ill feeling against me, your position is a difficult one. In what respect? Because you are under your own roof. However difficult it may be, I understand it very well. Do you suppose that, with anyone else but yourself, 
I should have shown so much frankness. What? So much frankness, do you say? You, who refuse to tell me the slightest thing? At all events, then, so much ceremony and consideration. Ah, I have nothing to say in that respect. One moment, Monseigneur. Let me tell you how I should have behaved towards any one but yourself. It might be that I happened to arrive at your door just as your guests or your friends had left you, or if they had not gone yet, I should wait until they were leaving, and should then catch them one after the other, like rabbits. I should lock them up quietly enough. I should steal softly along the carpet of your corridor, and with one hand upon you, before you suspected the slightest thing amiss, I should keep you safely until my master's breakfast in the morning. In this way, I should just the same have avoided all publicity, all disturbance, all opposition. But there would also have been no warning for Monsieur Fouquet, no consideration for his feelings, none of those delicate concessions which are shown by persons who are essentially courteous in their natures, whenever the decisive moment may arrive. Are you satisfied with the plan? It makes me shudder. I thought you would not like it. It would have been very disagreeable to have made my appearance to-morrow, without any preparation, and to have asked you to deliver up your sword. Oh, monsieur, I should have died of shame and anger. Your gratitude is too eloquently expressed. I have not done enough to deserve it, I assure you. Most certainly, monsieur, you will never get me to believe that. Well, then, monseigneur, if you are satisfied with what I have done, and have somewhat recovered from the shock which I prepared you for as much as I possibly could, let us allow the few hours that remain to pass away undisturbed. You are harassed, and should arrange your thoughts. I beg you, therefore, go to sleep, or pretend to go to sleep, either on your bed or in your bed. I will sleep in this armchair." and when I fall asleep, my rest is so sound that a cannon would not wake me. Fouquet smiled. I expect, however, continued the musketeer, the case of a door being opened, whether a secret door or any other, or the case of any one going out of or coming into the room, for anything like that my ear is as quick and sensitive as the ear of a mouse. Creaking noises make me start. It arises, I suppose, from a natural antipathy to anything of the kind. Move about as much as you like. Walk up and down in any part of the room. Write, efface, destroy, burn. Nothing like that will prevent me from going to sleep, or even prevent me from snoring. But do not touch either the key or the handle of the door for I should start up in a moment, and that would shake my nerves and make me ill. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' said Fouquet, "'you are certainly the most witty and the most courteous man I ever met with, and you will leave me only one regret, that of having made your acquaintance so late.' D'Artagnan drew a deep sigh, which seemed to say, "'Alas, 
you have perhaps made it too soon. He then settled himself in his armchair, while Fouquet, half lying on his bed and leaning on his arm, was meditating on his misadventures. In this way, both of them, leaving the candles burning, awaited the first dawn of the day. And when Fouquet happened to sigh too loudly, D'Artagnan only snored the louder. Not a single visit, not even from Aramis, disturbed their quietude. Not a sound even was heard throughout the whole vast palace. Outside, however, the guards of honour on duty, and the patrol of musketeers, paced up and down, and the sound of their feet could be heard on the gravel walks. It seemed to act as an additional soporific for the sleepers, while the murmuring of the wind through the trees, and the unceasing music of the fountains whose waters tumbled in the basin, still went on uninterruptedly, without being disturbed at the slight noises and items of little moment that constitute the life and death of human nature. End of chapter Chapter Twenty of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Twenty The Morning. In vivid contrast to the sad and terrible destiny of the king imprisoned in the Bastille and tearing, in sheer despair, the bolts and bars of his dungeon, the rhetoric of the chroniclers of old would not fail to present, as a complete antithesis, the picture of Philippe lying asleep beneath the royal canopy. We do not pretend to say that such rhetoric is always bad, and always scatters, in places where they have no right to grow, the flowers with which it embellishes and enlivens history but we shall, on the present occasion, carefully avoid polishing the antithesis in question, but shall proceed to draw another picture as minutely as possible, to serve as foil and counterfoil to the one in the preceding chapter. The young prince alighted from Aramis's room, in the same way the king had descended from the apartment dedicated to Morpheus. The dome gradually and slowly sank down under Aramis's pressure, and Philippe stood beside the royal bed, which had ascended again after having deposited its prisoner in the secret depths of the subterranean passage. Alone, in the presence of all the luxury which surrounded him, alone, in the presence of his power, alone, with the part he was about to be forced to act, Philippe for the first time felt his heart and mind and soul expand beneath the influence of a thousand mutable emotions, which are the vital throbs of a king's heart. He could not help changing colour when he looked upon the empty bed, still tumbled by his brother's body. This mute accomplice had returned, after having completed the work it had been destined to perform. It returned with the traces of the crime. It spoke to the guilty author of that crime with the frank and unreserved language which an accomplice never fears to use in the company of his companion in guilt, for it spoke the truth. Philippe bent over the bed, 
and perceived a pocket-handkerchief lying on it, which was still damp from the cold sweat which had poured from Louis the Fourteenth's face. This sweat-bestained handkerchief terrified Philippe, as the gore of Abel frightened Cain. "'I am face to face with my destiny,' said Philippe, his eyes on fire, and his face a livid white. "'Is it likely to be more terrifying than my captivity has been sad and gloomy? Though I am compelled to follow out, at every moment, the sovereign power and authority I have usurped, shall I cease to listen to the scruples of my heart? Yes, the king has lain on this bed. It is indeed his head that has left its impression on this pillow, his bitter tears that have stained this handkerchief. And yet I hesitate to throw myself on the bed, or to press in my hand the handkerchief which is embroidered with my brother's arms. Away with such weakness! Let me imitate M. Doublet, who asserts that a man's actions should be always one degree above his thoughts. Let me imitate M. Doublet, whose thoughts are of, and for himself alone, who regards himself as a man of honour, so long as he injures or betrays his enemies only. I, I alone, should have occupied this bed, if Louis the Fourteenth had not, owing to my mother's criminal abandonment, stood in my way. And this handkerchief, embroidered with the arms of France, would in right and justice belong to me alone, if, as M. Dublay observes, I had been left my royal cradle. Philippe, son of France, take your place on that bed. Philippe, sole king of France, resume the blazonry that is yours. Philippe, sole heir presumptive to Louis the Thirteenth, your father, show yourself without pity or mercy for the usurper who, at this moment, has not even to suffer the agony of the remorse of all that you have had to submit to. With these words, Philippe, notwithstanding an instinctive repugnance of feeling, and in spite of the shudder of terror which mastered his will, threw himself on the royal bed, and forced his muscles to press the still warm place where Louis the Fourteenth had lain, while he buried his burning face in the handkerchief still moistened by his brother's tears. With his head thrown back and buried in the soft down of his pillow, Philippe perceived above him the crown of France, suspended, as we have stated, by angels with outspread golden wings. A man may be ambitious of lying in a lion's den, but can hardly hope to sleep there quietly. Philippe listened attentively to every sound. His heart panted and throbbed at the very suspicion of approaching terror and misfortune. But confident in his own strength, which was confirmed by the force of an overpoweringly resolute determination. He waited until some decisive circumstance should permit him to judge for himself. He hoped that imminent danger might be revealed to him, like those phosphoric lights of the tempest which show the sailors the altitude of the waves against which they have to struggle. But nothing approached. Silence, that mortal enemy of restless hearts, and of ambitious minds, shrouded in the thickness of its gloom during the remainder of the night the future king of France, who lay there sheltered beneath his stolen crown. 
towards the morning a shadow, rather than a body, glided into the royal chamber. Philippe expected his approach, and neither expressed nor exhibited any surprise. "'Well, Monsieur d'Herblay?' "'Well, sire, all is accomplished.' "'How?' "'Exactly, as we expected.' "'Did he resist?' "'Terribly. Tears and entreaties.' "'And then?' "'A perfect stupor.' "'But at last?' "'Oh, at last, a complete victory, an absolute silence.' "'Did the governor of the Bastille suspect anything?' "'Nothing.' "'The resemblance, however?' "'Was the cause of the success.' "'But the prisoner cannot fail to explain himself. Think well of that. I have myself been able to do as much as that on former occasion.' "'I have already provided for every chance. In a few days, sooner if necessary.' We will take the captive out of his prison, and will send him out of the country, to a place of exile so remote. People can return from their exile, Monsieur d'Herblay. To a place of exile so distant, I was going to say, that human strength and the duration of human life would not be enough for his return. Once more a cold look of intelligence passed between Aramis and the young king. "'And Monsieur de Vallon?' asked Philippe, in order to change the conversation. "'He will be presented to you to-day, and confidentially will congratulate you on the danger which that conspirator has made you run.' "'What is to be done with him?' "'With Monsieur de Vallon?' "'Yes, confer a dukedom on him, I suppose.' "'A dukedom?' replied Aramis, smiling in a significant manner. "'Why do you laugh, Monsieur d'Herblay?' "'I laugh at the extreme caution of your idea.' "'Cautious? Why so?' "'Your Majesty is doubtless afraid that poor Porthos may possibly become a troublesome witness, and you wish to get rid of him.' "'What, in making him a duke?' "'Certainly.' You would assuredly kill him, for he would die from joy, and the secret would die with him. Good heavens! Yes, said Aramis, phlegmatically, I should lose a very good friend. At this moment, and in the middle of this idle conversation, under the light tone of which the two conspirators concealed their joy and pride at their mutual success, Aramis heard something which made him prick up his ears. "'What is that?' said Philippe. "'The dawn, sire.' "'Well?' "'Well, before you retired to bed last night, you probably decided to do something this morning at break of day.' "'Yes, I told my captain of the musketeers,' replied the young man hurriedly, "'that I should expect him.' If you told him that, he will certainly be here, for he is a most punctual man. I hear a step in the vestibule. It must be he. Come, let us begin the attack, said the young king resolutely. Be cautious for heaven's sake. To begin the attack, 
and with D'Artagnan, would be madness. D'Artagnan knows nothing. He has seen nothing. He is a hundred miles from suspecting our mystery in the slightest degree. But if he comes into this room the first this morning, he will be sure to detect something of what has taken place, and which he would imagine it his business to occupy himself about. Before we allow D'Artagnan to penetrate into this room, we must air the room thoroughly, or introduce so many people into it, that the keenest scent in the whole kingdom may be deceived by the traces of twenty different persons. "'But how can I send him away, since I have given him a rendezvous?' observed the prince, impatient to measure swords with so redoubtable an antagonist. "'I will take care of that,' replied the bishop. "'And in order to begin, I am going to strike a blow which will completely stupefy our man.' "'He, too, is striking a blow, for I hear him at the door.' added the prince hurriedly. And, in fact, a knock at the door was heard at that moment. Aramis was not mistaken, for it was indeed D'Artagnan who adopted that mode of announcing himself. We have seen how he passed the night in philosophizing with Monsieur Fouquet, but the musketeer was very weary even of feigning to fall asleep, and as soon as early as dawn illumined with its gloomy gleams of light the sumptuous cornices of the superintendent's room, D'Artagnan rose from his armchair, arranged his sword, brushed his coat and hat with a sleeve, like a private soldier getting ready for inspection. "'Are you going out?' said Fouquet. "'Yes, Monseigneur. And you?' "'I shall remain.' "'You pledge your word?' "'Certainly.' "'Very good.' Besides, my only reason for going out is to try and get that reply. You know what I mean? That sentence, you mean? Stay, I have something of the old Roman in me. This morning, when I got up, I remarked that my sword had got caught in one of the aiguillettes, and that my shoulder-belt had slipped quite off. That is an infallible sign. Of prosperity? Yes. Be sure of it, for every time that that confounded belt of mine stuck fast to my back, it has always signified a punishment from M. de Treville, or a refusal of money by M. de Mazarin. Every time my sword hung fast to my shoulder-belt, it always predicted some disagreeable commission or another for me to execute, and I have had showers of them all my life through. Every time, too, my sword danced about in its sheath, a duel, fortunate in its result, was sure to follow. Whenever it dangled about the calves of my legs, it signified a slight wound. Every time it fell completely out of the scabbard, I was booked, and made up my mind that I should have to remain on the field of battle, with two or three months under surgical bandages, into the bargain. "'I do not know your sword kept you so well informed.' said Fouquet, with a faint smile, which showed how he was struggling against his own weakness. "'Is your sword bewitched, or under the influence of some imperial charm?' "'Why, you must know that my sword may almost be regarded as part of my own body. I have heard that certain men seem to have warnings given them by feeling something the matter with their legs, or a throbbing of their temples. With me, 
It is my sword that warns me. Well, it told me of nothing this morning. But, stay a moment. Look here. It has just fallen of its own accord into the last hole of the belt. Do you know what that is a warning of? No. Well, that tells me of an arrest that will have to be made this very day. Well, said the surintendant, more astonished than annoyed by this frankness, if there is nothing disagreeable predicted to you by your sword, I am to conclude that it is not disagreeable for you to arrest me. You? Arrest you? Of course, the warning does not concern you since you have been arrested ever since yesterday. It is not you I shall have to arrest, be assured of that. That is the reason why I am delighted, and also the reason why I said that my day will be a happy one. And with these words, pronounced with the most affectionate graciousness of manner, the captain took leave of Fouquet, in order to wait upon the king. He was on the point of leaving the room, when Fouquet said to him, "'One last mark of kindness!' "'What is it, Monseigneur?' "'Monsieur d'Herblay. Let me see Monsieur d'Herblay. "'I am going to try and get him to come to you.' D'Artagnan did not think himself so good a prophet. It was written that the day would pass away and realize all the predictions that had been made in the morning. He had accordingly knocked, as we have seen, at the king's door. The door opened. The captain thought it was the king who had just opened it himself, and this supposition was not altogether inadmissible, considering the state of agitation in which he had left Louis the Fourteenth the previous evening. But instead of his royal master, whom he was on the point of saluting with the greatest respect, he perceived the long, calm features of Aramis. So extreme was his surprise that he could hardly refrain from uttering a loud exclamation, Aramis, he said. Good morning, dear D'Artagnan, replied the prelate coldly. You here, stammered out the musketeer. His Majesty desires you to report that he is still sleeping, after having been greatly fatigued during the whole night. Ah, said D'Artagnan, who could not understand how the Bishop of Vannes who had been so indifferent a favourite the previous evening, had become in half a dozen hours the most magnificent mushroom of fortune that had ever sprung up in a sovereign's bedroom. In fact, to transmit the orders of the king even to the mere threshold of that monarch's room, to serve as an intermediary of Louis the Fourteenth, so as to be able to give a single order in his name at a couple paces from him, he must have become more than Richelieu had ever been to Louis the Thirteenth. D'Artagnan's expressive eye, half-open lips, his curling moustache, said as much indeed in the plainest language to the chief favourite, who remained calm and perfectly unmoved. "'Moreover,' continued the bishop, "'you will be good enough, Monsieur le Capitaine des Mousquetaires,' to allow those only to pass into the king's room this morning who have special permission. His Majesty does not wish to be disturbed just yet. "'But,' objected D'Artagnan, almost on the point of refusing to obey this order, and particularly of giving unrestrained passage to the suspicions which the king's silence had aroused, 
But, Monsieur l'Evêque, his majesty gave me a rendezvous for this morning. Later, later, said the king's voice from the bottom of the alcove, a voice which made a cold shudder pass through the musketeer's veins. He bowed, amazed, confused, and stupefied by the smile with which Aramis seemed to overwhelm him, as soon as these words had been pronounced. And then, continued the bishop, as an answer to what you are coming to ask the king, my dear D'Artagnan, here is an order of his majesty, which you will be good enough to attend to forthwith, for it concerns Monsieur Fouquet. D'Artagnan took the order which was held out to him. "'To be set at liberty,' he murmured. "'Ah!' And he uttered a second, "'Ah!' Still more full of intelligence than the former, for this order explained Aramis's presence with the king, and that Aramis, in order to have obtained Fouquet's pardon, must have made considerable progress in the royal favour, and that this favour explained, in its tenor, the hardly conceivable assurance with which M. d'Herblay issued the order in the king's name. For D'Artagnan it was quite sufficient to have understood something of the matter in hand, in order to understand the rest. He bowed and withdrew a couple of paces, as though he were about to leave. "'I am going with you,' said the bishop. "'Where to?' "'To Monsieur Fouquet. I wish to be a witness of his delight.' "'Ah! Aramis, how you puzzled me just now,' said D'Artagnan again. "'But you understand now, I suppose?' "'Of course I understand.' he said aloud, but added in a low tone to himself, almost hissing the words between his teeth, "'No, no, I do not understand yet, but it is all the same, for here is the order for it.' And then he added, "'I will lead the way, Monseigneur,' and he conducted Aramis to Fouquet's apartments. End of chapter Chapter Twenty One of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Twenty One The King's Friend. Fouquet was waiting with anxiety. He had already sent away many of his servants and friends who, anticipating the usual hour of his ordinary receptions, had called at his door to inquire after him. Preserving the utmost silence respecting the danger which hung suspended by a hair above his head, he only asked them, as he did every one, indeed, who came to the door, where Aramis was. When he saw D'Artagnan return, and when he perceived the Bishop of Vannes behind him, he could hardly restrain his delight, it was fully equal to his previous uneasiness. The mere sight of Aramis was a complete compensation to the surintendant for the unhappiness he had undergone in his arrest. The prelate was silent and grave, D'Artagnan completely bewildered by such an accumulation of events. "'Well, Captain, so you have brought Monsieur Dublay to me.' 
And something better still, Monseigneur. What is that? Liberty. I am free. Yes, by the king's order. Fouquet resumed his usual serenity, that he might interrogate Aramis with a look. Oh, yes, you can thank Monsieur l'Evêque de Vannes, pursued D'Artagnan, for it is indeed to him that you owe the change that has taken place in the king. Oh, said Fouquet, more humiliated at the service than grateful at its success. But you, continued D'Artagnan, addressing Aramis, you, who have become Monsieur Fouquet's protector and patron, can you not do something for me? "'Anything in the wide world you like, my friend,' replied the bishop in his calmest tones. "'One thing only, then, and I shall be perfectly satisfied. "'How on earth did you manage to become the favourite of the king, "'you who have never spoken to him more than twice in your life?' "'From a friend such as you are,' said Aramis, "'I cannot conceal anything.' "'Ah, very good. Tell me, then. Very well. You think that I have seen the king only twice. Whilst the fact is, I have seen him more than a hundred times. Only we have kept it very secret, that is all. And without trying to remove the color, which at this revelation made D'Artagnan's face flush scarlet, Aramis turned towards Monsieur Fouquet, who was as much surprised as the musketeer. Monseigneur, he resumed, the king desires me to inform you that he is more than ever your friend, and that your beautiful fete, so generously offered by you on his behalf, has touched him to the very heart. And thereupon he saluted Monsieur Fouquet with so much reverence of manner, that the latter, incapable of understanding a man whose diplomacy was of so prodigious a character, remained incapable of uttering a single syllable and equally incapable of thought or movement, D'Artagnan fancied he perceived that these two men had something to say to each other, and he was about to yield to that feeling of instinctive politeness which in such a case hurries a man towards the door, when he feels his presence is an inconvenience for others, but his eager curiosity, spurred on by so many mysteries, counseled him to remain. Aramis thereupon turned towards him, and said in a quiet tone, you will not forget, my friend, the king's order respecting those whom he intends to receive this morning on rising. These words were clear enough, and the musketeer understood them. He therefore bowed to Fouquet, and then to Aramis, to the latter with a slight admixture of ironical respect, and disappeared. No sooner had he left than Fouquet, whose impatience had hardly been able to wait for that moment, darted towards the door to close it, and then, returning to the bishop, he said, "'My dear D'Herblay, I think it now high time you should explain all that is past, for in plain and honest truth I do not understand anything.' "'We will explain all that to you,' said Aramis, sitting down, and making Fouquet sit down also. "'Where shall I begin?' "'With this, first of all, why does the king set me at liberty?' You ought rather to ask me what his reason was for having you arrested. Since my arrest I have had time to think over it, and my idea is that it rises out of some slight feeling of jealousy, 
my fête put M. Colbert out of temper, and M. Colbert discovered some cause of complaint against me. Belle-Isle, for instance. No, there is no question at all just now of Belle-Isle. What is it, then? Do you remember those receipts for thirteen millions which M. de Mazarin contrived to steal from you? Yes, of course. Well, you are pronounced a public robber. Good heavens! Oh, that is not all. Do you also remember that letter you wrote to La Valliere? Alas, yes. And that proclaims you a traitor and a suborner. Why should he have pardoned me, then? We have not yet arrived at that part of our argument. I wish you to be quite convinced of the fact itself. Observe this well. The king knows you to be guilty of an appropriation of public funds. Oh, of course, I know that you have done nothing of the kind, but at all events. The king has seen the receipts, and he can do no other than to believe you are incriminated. I beg your pardon, I do not see. You will see presently, though. The king, moreover, having read your love-letter to La Valliere, and the offers you there made her, cannot retain any doubt of your intentions with regard to that young lady. You will admit that, I suppose. Certainly. Pray conclude. In the fewest words. The king, we may henceforth assume, is your powerful, implacable, and eternal enemy. Agreed. But am I then so powerful that he has not dared to sacrifice me? notwithstanding his hatred, with all the means which my weakness or my misfortunes may have given him as a hold upon me. It is clear beyond all doubt, pursued Aramis coldly, that the king has quarrelled with you, irreconcilably. But since he has absolved me, do you believe it likely? asked the bishop with a searching look. Without believing in his sincerity, I believe it in the accomplished fact. Aramis slightly shrugged his shoulders. But why, then, should Louis the Fourteenth have commissioned you to tell me what you have just stated? The king charged me with no message for you. With nothing? said the surintendant, stupefied. But that order— Oh, yes— you are quite right. There is an order, certainly. And these words were pronounced by Aramis in so strange a tone that Fouquet could not resist starting. You are conceding something from me, I see. What is it? Aramis softly rubbed his white fingers over his chin, but said nothing. Does the king exile me? Do not act as if you are playing at the games children play at when they have to try and guess where a thing has been hidden, and are informed by a bell being rung when they are approaching near to it or going away from it. Speak, then. Guess. You alarm me. Bah! That is because you have not guessed, then. What did the king say to you? In the name of our friendship, do not deceive me. The king has not said one word to me. You are killing me with impatience, D'Herblay. Am I still superintendent? 
"'As long as you like.' "'But what extraordinary empire have you suddenly acquired over His Majesty's mind?' "'Ah, that's the point.' "'He does your bidding?' "'I believe so.' "'It is hardly credible.' "'So anyone would say.' "'De play, by our alliance, by our friendship, by everything you hold dearest in the world, speak openly, I implore you. By what means have you succeeded in overcoming Louis the Fourteenth's prejudices? For he did not like you, I am certain.' "'The king will like me now,' said Aramis, laying stress upon the last word. "'You have something particular, then, between you?' "'Yes.' "'A secret, perhaps?' "'A secret?' "'A secret of such a nature as to change his majesty's interests?' "'You are indeed a man of superior intelligence, Monseigneur, and have made a particularly accurate guess.' I have, in fact, discovered a secret, of a nature to change the interests of the King of France. Ah, said Fouquet, with the reserve of a man who does not wish to ask any more questions. And you shall judge of it yourself, pursued Aramis, and you shall tell me if I am mistaken with regard to the importance of this secret. I am listening since you are good enough to unbosom yourself to me, only do not forget that I have asked you about nothing which it may be indiscreet in you to communicate. Aramis seemed for a moment as if he were collecting himself. Do not speak, said Fouquet. There is still time enough. Do you remember, said the bishop, casting down his eyes, the birth of Louis the Fourteenth? as if it were yesterday. Have you ever heard anything particular respecting his birth? Uh, nothing, except that the king was not really the son of Louis the Thirteenth. That does not matter to us or the kingdom either. He is the son of his father, says the French law, whose father is recognized by law. True, but it is a grave matter when the quality of races is called into question. A mere secondary question, after all. So that, in fact, you have never learned or heard anything in particular? Nothing. That is where my secret begins. The queen, you must know, instead of being delivered of a son, was delivered of twins. Fouquet looked up suddenly as he replied, and the second is dead. You will see. These twins seemed likely to be regarded as the pride of their mother, and the hope of France, but the weak nature of the king, his superstitious feelings, made him apprehend a series of conflicts between two children whose rights were equal. So he put out of the way, he suppressed one of the twins. Suppressed, did you say? Have patience. Both the children grew up, the one on the throne, whose minister you are, the other, who is my friend, in gloom and isolation. Good heavens! What are you saying, Monsieur d'Herblay? And what is this poor prince doing? 
Ask me, rather, what has he done? Yes, yes. He was brought up in the country, and then thrown into a fortress which goes by the name of the Bastille. Is it possible? cried the surintendant, clasping his hands. The one was the most fortunate of men, the other the most unhappy and miserable of all living beings. Does his mother not know this? Anne of Austria knows it all. And the king? Knows absolutely nothing. So much the better, said Fouquet. This remark seemed to make a great impression on Aramis. He looked at Fouquet with the most anxious expression of countenance. "'I beg your pardon, I interrupted you,' said Fouquet. "'I was saying,' resumed Aramis, "'that this poor prince was the unhappiest of human beings, when heaven, whose thoughts are over all his creatures, undertook to come to his assistance.' "'Oh, in what way?' tell me you will see the reigning king i say the reigning king you can guess very well why uh, no why because both of them being legitimate princes ought to have been kings is not that your opinion it is certainly unreservedly most unreservedly twins are one person in two bodies i am pleased that a legist of your learning and authority should have pronounced such an opinion it is agreed then that each of them possessed equal rights is it not incontestably but gracious heavens what an extraordinary circumstance we are not at the end of it yet patience oh I shall find patience enough. Heaven wished to raise up for that oppressed child an avenger, or a supporter, or vindicator, if you prefer it. It happened that the reigning king, the usurper, you are quite of my opinion, I believe, that it is an act of usurpation quietly to enjoy, and selfishly to assume the right over, an inheritance to which a man has only half a right." yes usurpation is the word in that case i continue it was heaven's will that the usurper should possess in the person of his first minister a man of great talent of large and generous nature well well said fouquet i understand you you have relied upon me to repair the wrong which has been done to this unhappy brother of louis the fourteenth you have thought well I will help you. I thank you, D'Herblay. I thank you. Oh, no, it is not that at all. You have not allowed me to finish, said Aramis, perfectly unmoved. I will not say another word, then. Monsieur Fouquet, I was observing, the minister of the reigning sovereign, was suddenly taken into the greatest aversion, and menaced with the ruin of his fortune, loss of liberty, loss of life even by intrigue and personal hatred to which the king gave too readily an attentive ear but heaven permits still however out of consideration for the unhappy prince who had been sacrificed that monsieur fouquet should in his turn have a devoted friend who knew this state secret and felt that he possessed strength and courage enough to divulge this secret 
after having had the strength to carry it locked up in his own heart for twenty years. "'Go no farther,' said Fouquet, full of generous feelings. "'I understand you, and can guess everything now. You went to see the king when the intelligence of my arrest reached you. You implored him. He refused to listen to you. Then you threatened him with that secret, threatened to reveal it, and Louis the Fourteenth, alarmed at the risk of its betrayal, granted to the terror of your indiscretion that he refused to your generous intercession. I understand. I understand. You have the king in your power. I understand. You understand nothing, as yet, replied Aramis. And again you interrupt me. Then, too, allow me to observe that you pay no attention to logical reasoning, and seem to forget what you ought most to remember. What do you mean? You know upon what I laid the greatest stress at the beginning of our conversation. Yes, His Majesty's hate, invincible hate for me. Yes, but what feeling of hate could resist the threat of such a revelation? Such a revelation, do you say? That is the very point where your logic fails you. What? Do you suppose that if I had made such a revelation to the king, I should have been alive now? It is not ten minutes ago that you were with the king. That may be. He might not have had the time to get me killed outright, but he would have had the time to get me gagged and thrown in a dungeon. Come, come. Show a little consistency in your reasoning, Mordieu. And by the mere use of this word, which was so thoroughly his old musketeer's expression, forgotten by one who never seemed to forget anything, Fouquet could not but understand to what a pitch of exaltation the calm, impenetrable Bishop of Vannes had wrought himself. He shuddered. And then, replied the latter, after having mastered his feelings, should I be the man I really am, should I be the true friend you believe me, if I were to expose you, whom the king already hates so bitterly, to a feeling more than ever to be dreaded in that young man? To have robbed him is nothing. To have addressed the woman he loves is not much. But to hold in your keeping both his crown and his honour, why, he would pluck out your heart with his own hands." "'You have not allowed him to penetrate your secret, then?' "'I would sooner, far sooner, have swallowed at one draught all the poisons that Mithridates drank in twenty years, in order to try and avoid death, than have betrayed my secret to the king.' "'What have you done, then?' "'Ah! Now we are coming to the point, Monseigneur. I think I shall not fail to excite in you a little interest.' You are listening, I hope. How can you ask me if I am listening? Go on. Aramis walked softly all around the room, satisfied himself that they were alone, and that all was silent, and then returned and placed himself close to the armchair in which Fouquet was seated, awaiting with the deepest anxiety the revelation he had to make. I forgot to tell you resumed Aramis, addressing himself to Fouquet, who listened to him with the most absorbed attention. 
I forgot to mention a most remarkable circumstance respecting these twins, namely, that God had formed them so startlingly, so miraculously, like each other, that it would be utterly impossible to distinguish the one from the other. Their own mother would not be able to distinguish them. "'Is it possible?' exclaimed Fouquet. "'The same noble character in their features, the same carriage, the same stature, the same voice.' "'But their thoughts, degree of intelligence, their knowledge of human life?' There is inequality there, I admit, Monseigneur. Yes, for the prisoner of the Bastille is, most incontestably, superior in every way to his brother, and if, from his prison, this unhappy victim were to pass to the throne, France would not, from the earliest period of its history, perhaps, have had a master more powerful in genius and nobility of character. Fouquet buried his face in his hands, as if he were overwhelmed by the weight of this immense secret. Aramis approached him. "'There is a further inequality,' he said, continuing his work of temptation, "'an inequality which concerns yourself, Monseigneur, between the twins, both sons of Louis the Thirteenth, Namely, the last comer does not know Monsieur Colbert.' Fouquet raised his head immediately. His features were pale and distorted. The bolt had hit its mark, not his heart, but his mind and comprehension. "'I understand you,' he said to Aramis. "'You are proposing a conspiracy to me?' "'Something like it.' "'One of those attempts which, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, alters the fate of empires?' "'And of superintendents, too. Yes, Monseigneur.' In a word, you propose that I should agree to the substitution of the son of Louis the Thirteenth, who is now a prisoner in the Bastille, for the son of Louis the Thirteenth, who is at this moment asleep in the chamber of Morpheus? Aramis smiled with the sinister expression of the sinister thought which was passing through his brain. Exactly, he said. Have you thought continued Fouquet, becoming animated with the strength of talent which in a few seconds originates and matures the conception of a plan, and with that largeness of view which foresees all consequences and embraces every result at a glance. Have you thought that we must assemble the nobility, the clergy, and the third estate of the realm, that we shall have to depose the reigning sovereign, to disturb by so frightful a scandal the tomb of their dead father, to sacrifice the life, the honour of a woman, and of Austria, the life and peace of mind and heart of another woman, Maria Theresa, and suppose that it were all done, if we were to succeed in doing it. I do not understand you, continued Aramis coldly. There is not a single syllable of sense in all you have just said. What? said the superintendent, surprised. A man like you refuse to view the practical bearing of the case? Do you confine yourself to the childish delight of a political illusion, and neglect the chances of its being carried into execution? In other words, the reality itself, is it possible?' "'My friend,' said Aramis, 
emphasizing the word with a kind of disdainful familiarity. What does heaven do in order to substitute one king for another? Heaven! exclaimed Fouquet. Heaven gives directions to its agent, who seizes upon the doomed victim, hurries him away, and seats the triumphant rival on the empty throne. But you forget that this agent is called death. Oh, Monsieur d'Herblay, in heaven's name, tell me if you have had the idea— there is no question of that, Monseigneur. You are going beyond the object in view. Who spoke of Louis the Fourteenth's death? Who spoke of adopting the example which heaven sets in following out the strict execution of its decrees? No. I wish you to understand that heaven effects its purposes without confusion or disturbance, without exciting comment or remark, without difficulty or exertion, and that men— inspired by heaven, succeed like heaven itself in all their undertakings, in all they attempt, in all they do. What do you mean? I mean my friend, returned Aramis, with the same intonation on the word friend that he had had applied to it the first time. I mean that if there has been any confusion, scandal, and even effort in the substitution of the prisoner for the king, I defy you to prove it. What? cried Fouquet, whiter than the handkerchief with which he wiped his temples. What do you say? Go to the king's apartment, continued Aramis tranquilly, and you who know the mystery, I defy even you to perceive that the prisoner of the Bastille is lying in his brother's bed. But the king! stammered Fouquet, seized with horror at the intelligence. "'What king?' said Aramis, in his gentlest tone. "'The one who hates you, or the one who likes you?' "'The, the king of yesterday!' "'The king of yesterday. Be quite easy on that score. He has gone to take the place in the Bastille which his victim occupied for so many years.' "'Great God! And who took him there?' "'I.' "'You?' "'Yes, and in the simplest way. I carried him away last night. While he was descending into midnight—while he was descending into midnight, the other was ascending into day. I do not think there has been any disturbance whatever. A flash of lightning without thunder awakens nobody.' Fouquet uttered a thick, smothered cry, as if he had been struck by some invisible blow, and clasping his head between his clenched hands, he murmured, "'You did that?' "'Cleverly enough, too. What do you think of it?' "'You dethroned the king? Imprisoned him, too?' "'Yes, that has been done.' "'And such an action was committed here?' At Vaux? Yes, here at Vaux, in the chamber of Morpheus. It would almost seem that it had been built in anticipation of such an act. And at what time did it occur? Last night, between twelve and one o'clock. Fouquet made a movement as if he were on the point of springing upon Aramis. He restrained himself. At Vaux, under my roof! he said in a half-strangled voice. 
I believe so, for it is still your house, and it is likely to continue so, since Monsieur Colbert cannot rob you of it now. It was under my roof, then, monsieur, that you committed this crime? This crime, said Aramis, stupefied. This abominable crime, pursued Fouquet, becoming more and more excited, this crime more execrable than an assassination, this crime which dishonors my name for ever and entails upon me the horror of posterity. You are not in your senses, monsieur, replied Aramis in an irresolute tone of voice. You are speaking too loudly. Take care. I will call out so loudly that the whole world shall hear me. Monsieur Fouquet, take care. Fouquet turned round towards the prelate, whom he looked at full in the face. "'You have dishonoured me,' he said, "'in committing so foul an act of treason, so heinous a crime upon my guest, upon one who was peacefully reposing beneath my roof. Oh, woe, woe is me!' "'Woe to the man, rather, who beneath your roof meditated the ruin of your fortune, your life. Do you forget that?' He was my guest, my sovereign. Aramis rose, his eyes literally bloodshot, his mouth trembling convulsively. Have I a man out of his senses to deal with? He said. You have an honorable man to deal with. You are mad. A man who will prevent you consummating your crime. You are mad, I say. A man who would sooner... Oh, far sooner die, who would kill you even, rather than allow you to complete his dishonor. And Fouquet snatched up his sword, which D'Artagnan had placed at the head of his bed, and clenched it resolutely in his hand. Aramis frowned, and thrust his hand into his breast as if in search of a weapon. This movement did not escape Fouquet, who, full of nobleness and pride in his magnanimity, threw his sword to a distance from him, and approached Aramis so close as to touch his shoulder with his disarmed hand. "'Monsieur,' he said, "'I would sooner die here on the spot than survive this terrible disgrace, and if you have any pity left for me, I entreat you to take my life.' Aramis remained silent and motionless. "'You do not reply?' said Fouquet. Aramis raised his head gently, and a glimmer of hope might be seen once more to animate his eyes. "'Reflect, Monseigneur,' he said, "'upon everything we have to expect. As the matter now stands, the king is still alive, and his imprisonment saves your life.' "'Yes,' replied Fouquet. "'You may have been acting on my behalf, but I will not, do not accept your services.' But first of all, I do not wish your ruin. You will leave this house. Aramis stifled the exclamation which almost escaped his broken heart. I am hospitable towards all who are dwellers beneath my roof, continued Fouquet, with an air of inexpressible majesty. You will not be more fatally lost than he whose ruin you have consummated. You will be so said Aramis, in a hoarse, prophetic voice. "'You will be so. Believe me.' 
I accept the augury, Monsieur d'Herblay, but nothing shall prevent me, nothing shall stop me. You will leave Vaux, you must leave France. I give you four hours to place yourself out of the king's reach. Four hours, said Aramis, scornfully and incredulously. Upon the word of Fouquet, no one shall follow you before the expiration of that time. You will therefore have four hours' advance of those whom the king may wish to dispatch after you. Four hours, repeated Aramis, in a thick, smothered voice. It is more than you will need to get on board a vessel and flee to Belle-Isle, which I give you as a place of refuge. Ah, murmured Aramis. Belle-Isle is as much mine for you as Vaux is mine for the king. Go, D'Herblay, go! As long as I live, not a hair of your head shall be injured. Thank you, said Aramis, with a cold irony of manner. Go at once, then, and give me your hand, before we both hasten away, you to save your life, I to save my honour. Aramis withdrew from his breast the hand he had concealed there, it was stained with his blood. He had dug his nails into his flesh, as if in punishment for having nursed so many projects, more vain, insensate, and fleeting than the life of the man himself. Fouquet was horror-stricken, and then his hote smote him with pity. He threw open his arms as if to embrace him. "'I had no arms.' murmured Aramis, as wild and terrible in his wrath as the shade of Dido. And then, without touching Fouquet's hand, he turned his head aside and stepped back a pace or two. His last word was an imprecation, his last gesture a curse, which his blood-stained hand seemed to invoke as it sprinkled on Fouquet's face a few drops of blood which flowed from his breast. And both of them darted out of the room by the secret staircase which led down to the inner courtyard. Fouquet ordered his best horses, while Aramis paused at the foot of the staircase which led to Porthos's apartment. He reflected profoundly and for some time, while Fouquet's carriage left the courtyard at full gallop. "'Shall I go alone?' said Aramis to himself. "'Or warn the prince? Oh, fury! Warn the prince, and then do what? Take him with me?' to carry this accusing witness about with me everywhere. War, too, would follow, civil war, implacable in its nature, and without any resource save myself. It is impossible. What could he do without me? Oh, without me he will be utterly destroyed. Yet who knows? Let destiny be fulfilled. Condemned he was. Let him remain so, then good or evil spirit, gloomy or scornful power, whom men call the genius of humanity, thou art a power more restlessly uncertain, more baselessly useless than wild mountain wind. Chance, thou termest thyself, but thou art nothing. Thou inflamest everything with thy breath, crumblest mountains at thy approach, and suddenly art thyself destroyed at the presence of the cross of dead wood, behind which stand another power, invisible like thyself, whom thou deniest, perhaps, but whose avenging hand is on thee, and hurls thee in the dust dishonoured and unnamed. Lost! 
I am lost. What can be done? Flee to Belle-Isle? Yes, and leave Porthos behind me, to talk and relate the whole affair to everyone. Porthos, too, who will have to suffer for what he has done. I will not let poor Porthos suffer. He seems like one of the members of my own frame, and his grief or misfortune would be mine as well. Porthos shall leave with me, and shall follow my destiny. It must be so. And Aramis, apprehensive of meeting any one to whom his hurried movements might appear suspicious, ascended the staircase without being perceived. Porthos, so recently returned from Paris, was already in a profound sleep. His huge body forgot its fatigue, as his mind forgot its thoughts. Aramis entered, light as a shadow, and placed his nervous grasp on the giant's shoulder. "'Come, Porthos!' he cried. "'Come!' Porthos obeyed, rose from his bed, opened his eyes, even before his intelligence seemed to be aroused. "'We leave immediately,' said Aramis. "'Ha!' returned Porthos. "'We shall go mounted, and faster than we have ever gone in our lives.' "'Ha!' repeated Porthos. "'Dress yourself, my friend.' and he helped the giant to dress himself, and thrust his gold and diamonds into his pocket. Whilst he was thus engaged, a slight noise attracted his attention, and on looking up he saw D'Artagnan watching them through the half-open door. Aramis started. "'What the devil are you doing there in such an agitated manner?' said the musketeer. "'Hush!' said Porthos. "'We are going off on a mission of great importance,' added the bishop." "'You are very fortunate,' said the musketeer. "'Oh, dear me!' said Porthos. "'I feel so wearied. I would far sooner have been fast asleep. But the service of the king—' "'Have you seen Monsieur Fouquet?' said Aramis to D'Artagnan. "'Yes, this very minute, in a carriage. What did he say to you?' "'Adieu, nothing more. Was that all?' What else do you think he could say? Am I worth anything now, since you have got into such high favour? Listen, said Aramis, embracing the musketeer. Your good times are returning again. You will have no occasion to be jealous of any one. Ha! <laughs> bah! I predict that something will happen to you today which will increase your importance more than ever. Really? You know that I know all the news. Oh, yes. Come, Porthos, are you ready? Let us go. I am quite ready, Aramis. Let us embrace D'Artagnan first. Most certainly. But the horses. Oh, there is no want of them here. Will you have mine? No, Porthos has his own stud. So, adieu, adieu. The fugitives mounted their horses beneath the very eyes of the captain of the musketeers, who held Porthos's stirrup for him, and gazed after them until they were out of sight. On any other occasion, thought the Gascon, I should say that those gentlemen were making their escape, but in these days politics seems so changed that such an exit is termed going on a mission. I have no objection. Let me attend to my own affairs." That is more than enough for me, and he philosophically entered his apartments. End of chapter
Chapter Twenty Two of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Twenty Two Showing How the Countersign Was Respected at the Bastille. Fouquet tore along as fast as his horses could drag him. On his way he trembled with horror at the idea of what had just been revealed to him. "'What must have been,' he thought, "'the youth of those extraordinary men, who, even as age is stealing fast upon them, are still able to conceive such gigantic plans, and carry them through without a tremor?' At one moment he could not resist the idea that all Aramis had just been recounting to him was nothing more than a dream, and whether the fable itself was not the snare, so that when Fouquet arrived at the Bastille he might possibly find an order of arrest which would send him to join the dethroned king. Strongly impressed with this idea, he gave certain sealed orders on his route, while fresh horses were being harnessed to his carriage. These orders were addressed to Monsieur d'Artagnan, and to certain others whose fidelity to the king was far above suspicion. In this way, said Fouquet to himself, prisoner or not, I shall have performed the duty that I owe my honour. The orders will not reach them until after my return, if I should return free, and consequently they will not have been unsealed. I shall take them back again. If I am delayed, it will be because some misfortune will have befallen me, and in that case assistance will be sent for me as well as for the king." Prepared in this manner, the superintendent arrived at the Bastille. He had travelled at the rate of five leagues and a half the hour. Every circumstance of delay which Aramis had escaped in his visit to the Bastille befell Fouquet. It was useless giving his name, equally useless his being recognised. He could not succeed in obtaining an entrance. By dint of entreaties, threats, commands, he succeeded in inducing a sentinel to speak to one of the subalterns, who went and told the major. As for the governor, they did not even dare disturb him. Fouquet sat in his carriage, at the outer gate of the fortress, chafing with rage and impatience, awaiting the return of the officers, who at last reappeared with a sufficiently sulky air. "'Well,' said Fouquet, impatiently, "'what did the major say?' "'Well, monsieur,' replied the soldier. The major laughed in my face. He told me that M. Fouquet was at Vaux, and that even were he at Paris, M. Fouquet would not get up at so early an hour as the present. "'Mon Dieu! You are an absolute set of fools!' cried the minister, darting out of the carriage, and before the subaltern had time to shut the gate, Fouquet sprang through it, and ran forward in spite of the soldier, who cried out for assistance." Fouquet gained ground, regardless of the cries of the man, who, however, having at last come up with Fouquet, called out to the sentinel of the second gate, "'Look out! Look out, sentinel!' The man crossed his pike before the minister, but the latter, robust and active, and hurried away too by his passion, wrested the pike from the soldier, and struck him a violent blow on the shoulder with it. The subaltern, who approached too closely, received a share of the blows as well. Both of them uttered loud and furious cries, at the sound of which the whole of the first body of the advance guard poured out of the guardhouse. 
Among them there was one, however, who recognized the superintendent, and who called, "'Monseigneur! Ah! Monseigneur! Stop! Stop, you fellows!' And he effectually checked the soldiers, who were on the point of revenging their companions. Fouquet desired them to open the gate, but they refused to do so without the countersign. He desired them to inform the governor of his presence, but the latter had already heard the disturbance at the gate. He ran forward, followed by his major, and accompanied by a picket of twenty men, persuaded that an attack was being made on the Bastille. Baisemeaux also recognized Fouquet immediately, and dropped the sword he bravely had been brandishing. "'Ah, Monseigneur,' he stammered, "'how can I excuse?' "'Monsieur,' said the superintendent, flushed with anger, and heated by his exertions, "'I congratulate you. Your watch and ward are admirably kept.' Baisemeaux turned pale, thinking that this remark was made ironically, and portended a furious burst of anger. But Fouquet had recovered his breath, and, beckoning the sentinel and the subaltern, who were rubbing their shoulders, towards him, he said, "'There are twenty pistoles for the sentinel, and fifty for the officer. Pray receive my compliments, gentlemen. I will not fail to speak to His Majesty about you. And now, Monsieur Baisemeaux, a word with you. And he followed the governor to his official residence, accompanied by a murmur of general satisfaction. Baisemeaux was already trembling with shame and uneasiness. Aramis's early visit, from that moment, seemed to possess consequences, which a functionary such as he, Baisemeaux was, was perfectly justified in apprehending. It was quite another thing, however, when Fouquet, in a sharp tone of voice, and with an imperious look, said, you have seen Monsieur d'Herblay this morning? Yes, Monseigneur. And are you not horrified at the crime of which you have made yourself an accomplice? Well, thought Baisemeaux, good so far. And then he added aloud, But what crime, Monseigneur, do you allude to? That for which you can be quartered alive, Monsieur. Do not forget that. But this is not a time to show anger. Conduct me immediately to the prisoner. To what prisoner? said Baisemeaux, trembling. You pretend to be ignorant? Very good. It is the best plan for you, perhaps. For if, in fact, you were to admit your participation in such a crime, it would be all over with you. I wish, therefore, to seem to believe in your assumption of ignorance. I entreat you, Monseigneur. That will do. Lead me to the prisoner. To Marchiali? Who is Marchiali? The prisoner who was brought back this morning by Monsieur d'Herblay. He is called Marchiali? said the superintendent, his convictions somewhat shaken by Baisemeaux's cool manner. Yes, Monseigneur, that is the name under which he was inscribed here. Fouquet looked steadily at Baisemeaux, as if he would read his very heart and perceived, with that clear-sightedness most men possess, who are accustomed to the exercise of power, that the man was speaking with perfect sincerity. Besides, in observing his face for a few moments, he could not believe that Aramis would have chosen such a confidant. "'It is the prisoner,' said the superintendent to him, "'whom Monsieur d'Herblay carried away the day before yesterday?' "'Yes, Monseigneur.' 
"'And whom he brought back this morning?' added Fouquet quickly, for he understood immediately the mechanism of Aramis's plan. "'Precisely, Monseigneur.' "'And his name is Marquis Ali, you say?' "'Yes, Marquis Ali. If Monseigneur has come here to remove him, so much the better, for I was going to write about him.' "'What has he done, then?' "'Ever since this morning he has annoyed me extremely.' He has had such terrible fits of passion as almost to make me believe that he would bring the Bastille itself down about our ears. "'I will soon relieve you of his possession,' said Fouquet. "'Ah, so much the better.' "'Conduct me to his prison.' "'Will Monseigneur give me the order?' "'What order?' "'An order from the King.' "'Wait until I sign you one.' That will not be sufficient, Monseigneur. I must have an order from the king. Fouquet assumed an irritated expression. As you are so scrupulous, he said, with regard to allowing prisoners to leave, show me the order by which this one was set at liberty. Baisemeaux showed him the order to release Selden. Very good, said Fouquet. But Selden is not Marchiali. But Marchiali is not at liberty, Monseigneur. He is here. But you said that Monsieur de Blay carried him away and brought him back again. I did not say so. So surely did you say it that I almost seem to hear it now. It was a slip of my tongue then, Monseigneur. Take care, Monsieur Baisemeaux, take care. I have nothing to fear, Monseigneur. I am acting according to the very strictest regulation. Do you dare to say so? I would say so in the presence of one of the apostles. Monsieur d'Herblay brought me an order to set Selden at liberty. Selden is free. I tell you that Marchiali has left the Bastille. You must prove that, Monseigneur. Let me see him. You, Monseigneur who govern this kingdom, know very well that no one can see any of the prisoners without an express order from the king. Monsieur de Blay has entered, however. That remains to be proved, Monseigneur. Monsieur de Baisemeaux, once again I warn you to pay particular attention to what you are saying. All the documents are there, Monseigneur. Monsieur de Blay is overthrown, overthrown monsieur d'herblay impossible you see that he has undoubtedly influenced you no monseigneur what does in fact influence me is the king's service i am doing my duty give me an order from him and you shall enter stay monsieur de gouverneur i give you my word that if you will allow me to see the prisoner i will give you an order from the king at once Give it to me now, Monseigneur. And that, if you refuse me, I will have you and all your officers arrested on the spot. Before you commit such an act of violence, Monseigneur, you will reflect, said Baisemeaux, who had turned very pale, that we will only obey an order signed by the king, and that it will be just as easy for you to obtain one to see Marchiali as to obtain one to do me so much injury. Me, too, who am perfectly innocent. True, true, cried.
cried Fouquet furiously. Perfectly true! Monsieur de Baisemeaux, he added in a sonorous voice, drawing the unhappy governor towards him, do you know why I am so anxious to speak to the prisoner? No, monseigneur, and allow me to observe that you are terrifying me out of my senses. I am trembling all over. In fact, I feel as though I were about to faint. You will stand a better chance of fainting outright, Monsieur Baisemeaux, when I return here at the head of ten thousand men and thirty pieces of cannon. Good heavens, monseigneur! You are losing your senses. When I have roused the whole population of Paris against you and your accursed towers, and have battered open the gates of this place, and hanged you to the topmost tree of yonder pinnacle. Monseigneur! Monseigneur! For pity's sake! I give you ten minutes to make up your mind, added Fouquet in a calm voice. I will sit down here in this armchair and wait for you. If in ten minutes' time you still persist, I leave this place, and you may think me as mad as you like. Then you shall see. Baisemeaux stamped his foot on the ground like a man in a state of despair, but he did not reply a single syllable. Whereupon Fouquet seized a pen and ink and wrote, Order for Monsieur le Prévost de Marchand to assemble the municipal guard, and to march upon the Bastille on the king's immediate service. Baisemeaux shrugged his shoulders. Fouquet wrote, Order for the Duc de Bouillon and Monsieur le Prince de Conde to assume the command of the Swiss guards, of the king's guards, and to march upon the Bastille on the king's immediate service. Baisemeaux reflected. Fouquet still wrote, Order for every soldier, citizen, or gentleman to seize and apprehend, wherever he may be found, le Chevalier d'Herblay, évêque de Vannes, and his accomplices, who are, first, Monsieur de Baisemeaux, governor of the Bastille, suspected of the crimes of high treason and rebellion. Stop, Monseigneur, cried Baisemeaux. I do not understand a single jot of the whole matter. But so many misfortunes, even were it madness itself that had set them at their awful work, might happen here in a couple of hours, that the king, by whom I must be judged, will see whether I have been wrong in withdrawing the countersign before this flood of imminent catastrophes. Come with me to the keep, Monseigneur. You shall see Marchiali. Fouquet darted out of the room, followed by Baisemeaux as he wiped the perspiration from his face. What a terrible morning, he said. What a disgrace for me. Walk faster, replied Fouquet. Baisemeaux made a sign to the jailer to precede them. He was afraid of his companion, which the latter could not fail to perceive. A truce to this child's play, he said roughly. Let the man remain here. Take the keys yourself and show me the way. Not a single person, do you understand, must hear what is going to take place here. Ah, said Baisemeaux, undecided. Again, cried Monsieur Fouquet. Ah, say no at once, and I will leave the Bastille and will myself carry my own dispatches. Baisemeaux bowed his head, took the keys, and unaccompanied, except by the minister, ascended the staircase. The higher they advanced up the spiral staircase, the more clearly did certain muffled murmurs 
become distinct appeals and fearful imprecations. "'What is that?' asked Fouquet. "'That is your Marchiali,' said the governor. "'This is the way these madmen scream.' And he accompanied that reply with a glance more pregnant with injurious allusion, as far as Fouquet was concerned, than politeness. The latter trembled. He had just recognized in one cry more terrible than any that had preceded it the king's voice. He paused on the staircase, snatching the bunch of keys from Baisemeaux, who thought this new madman was going to dash out his brains with one of them. "'Ah!' he cried. "'Monsieur d'Herblay did not say a word about that!' "'Give me the keys at once!' cried Fouquet, tearing them from his hand. "'Which is the key of the door I am to open?' "'That one.' A fearful cry, followed by a violent blow against the door, made the whole staircase resound with the echo. "'Leave this place!' said Fouquet to Baisemeaux in a threatening tone. "'I ask nothing better,' murmured the latter to himself. "'There will be a couple of madmen face to face.' and the one will kill the other, I am sure. "'Go,' repeated Fouquet. "'If you place your foot on this staircase before I call you, remember that you shall take the place of the meanest prisoner in the Bastille.' "'This job will kill me, I am sure it will,' muttered Baisemeaux as he withdrew with tottering steps. The prisoner's cries became more and more terrible. When Fouquet had satisfied himself that Baisemeaux had reached the bottom of the staircase, he inserted the key in the first lock. It was then that he heard the hoarse, choking voice of the king, crying out in a frenzy of rage, "'Help! Help! I am the king!' The key of the second door was not the same as the first, and Fouquet was obliged to look for it on the bunch. The king, however, furious and almost mad with rage and passion, shouted at the top of his voice, "'It was Monsieur Fouquet who brought me here! Help me against Monsieur Fouquet!' I am the king. Help the king against Monsieur Fouquet. These cries filled the minister's heart with terrible emotions. They were followed by a shower of blows leveled against the door with a part of a broken chair with which the king had armed himself. Fouquet at last succeeded in finding the key. The king was almost exhausted. He could hardly articulate distinctly as he shouted, Death to Fouquet! Death to the traitor Fouquet! The door flew open. End of chapter. Chapter twenty three of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask. By Alexandre Dumas, Chapter Twenty Three, The King's Gratitude. The two men were on the point of darting towards each other when they suddenly and abruptly stopped, as a mutual recognition took place, and each uttered a cry of horror. "Have you come to assassinate me, Monsieur?" said the King when he recognized Fouquet. "The King in this state," murmured the minister. Nothing could be more terrible, indeed, than the appearance of the young prince at the moment Fouquet had surprised him. His clothes were in tatters. His shirt, open and torn to rags, was stained with sweat and with the blood which streamed from his lacerated breast and arms. 
haggard, ghastly pale, his hair in disheveled masses, Louis the Fourteenth presented the most perfect picture of despair, distress, anger, and fear combined that could possibly be united in one figure. Fouquet was so touched, so affected and disturbed by it, that he ran towards him with his arms stretched out and his eyes filled with tears. Louis held up the massive piece of wood of which he had made such a furious use. "'Sire,' said Fouquet, in a voice trembling with emotion, "'do you not recognize the most faithful of your friends?' "'A friend? You?' repeated Louis, gnashing his teeth in a manner which betrayed his hate and desire for speedy vengeance. "'The most respectful of your servants,' added Fouquet, throwing himself on his knees. The king let the rude weapon fall from his grasp. Fouquet approached him, kissed his knees, and took him in his arms with inconceivable tenderness. "'My king, my child,' he said, "'how you must have suffered!' Louis, recalled to himself by the change of situation, looked at himself, and ashamed of the disordered state of his apparel, ashamed of his conduct, and ashamed of the air of pity and protection that was shown towards him, drew back. Fouquet did not understand this movement. He did not perceive that the king's feeling of pride would never forgive him for having been a witness of such an exhibition of weakness. "'Come, sire,' he said, "'you are free.' "'Free,' repeated the king. "'Oh, you set me at liberty, then, after having dared to lift up your hand against me.' "'You do not believe that!' exclaimed Fouquet indignantly. "'You cannot believe me to be guilty of such an act!' And rapidly, warmly even, he related the whole particulars of the intrigue, the details of which are already known to the reader. While the recital continued, Louis suffered the most horrible anguish of mind, and when it was finished, the magnitude of the danger he had run struck him far more than the importance of the secret relative to his twin brother. "'Monsieur,' he said, suddenly to Fouquet. This double birth is a falsehood. It is impossible. You cannot have been the dupe of it. Sire! It is impossible. I tell you that the honour, the virtue of my mother can be suspected, and my first minister has not yet done justice on the criminals. Reflect, sire, before you are hurried away by anger, replied Fouquet. The birth of your brother... I have only one brother, and that is monsieur. You know it as well as myself. There is a plot, I tell you, beginning with the governor of the Bastille. Be careful, sire, for this man has been deceived as every one else has, by the prince's likeness to yourself. Likeness? Absurd. This Marchiali must be singularly like your majesty, to be able to deceive every one's eye. Fouquet persisted. Ridiculous! Do not say so, sire. Those who had prepared everything in order to face and deceive your ministers, your mother, your officers of state, the members of your family, must be quite confident of the resemblance between you. But where are these persons, then? murmured the king. At Vaux. At Vaux? And you suffer them to remain there? My most instant duty appeared to me to be your majesty's release. I have accomplished that duty, and now, 
whatever your majesty may command, shall be done. I await your orders. Louis reflected for a few moments. Muster all the troops in Paris, he said. All the necessary orders are given for that purpose, replied Fouquet. You have given orders, exclaimed the king. For that purpose, yes, sire, your majesty will be at the head of ten thousand men in less than an hour. The only reply the king made was to take hold of Fouquet's hand with such an expression of feeling that it was very easy to perceive how strongly he had, until that remarked, maintained his suspicions of the minister, notwithstanding the latter's intervention. "'And with these troops,' he said, "'we shall go at once and besiege you in your house, the rebels who by this time will have established and entrenched themselves therein.' "'I should be surprised if that were the case,' replied Fouquet. "'Why?' "'Because their chief, the very soul of the enterprise, having been unmasked by me, the whole plan seems to me to have miscarried.' You have unmasked this false prince also? No, I have not seen him. Whom have you seen, then? The leader of the enterprise, not that unhappy young man. The latter is merely an instrument, destined through his whole life to wretchedness, I plainly perceive. Most certainly. It is Monsieur l'abbé d'Herblay, évêque de Vannes. Your friend? "'He was my friend, sire,' replied Fouquet, nobly. "'An unfortunate circumstance for you,' said the king, in a less generous tone of voice. "'Such friendships, sire, had nothing dishonourable in them, as so long as I was ignorant of the crime.' "'You should have foreseen it.' "'If I am guilty, I place myself in your majesty's hands.' "'Ah, monsieur Fouquet,' "'It was not that I meant,' returned the king, sorry to have shown the bitterness of his thought in such a manner. "'Well, I assure you that, notwithstanding the mask with which the villain covered his face, I had something like a vague suspicion that he was the very man. But with this chief of the enterprise there was a man of prodigious strength, the one who menaced me with a force almost Herculean. What is he?' It must be his friend, the Baron du Vallon, formerly one of the musketeers. The friend of D'Artagnan? The friend of the Comte de la Fere? Ah! exclaimed the king, as he paused at the name of the latter. We must not forget the connection that existed between the conspirators and Monsieur de Bragelonne. Sire, sire, do not go too far. Monsieur de la Fere is the most honorable man in France. Be satisfied with those whom I deliver up to you. With those whom you deliver up to me, you say. Very good, for you will deliver up those who are guilty to me. What does your majesty understand by that? inquired Fouquet. I understand, replied the king, that we shall soon arrive at Vaux with a large body of troops, and that we will lay violent hands upon that nest of vipers, and that not a soul shall escape. "'Your Majesty will put these men to death!' cried Fouquet. "'To the very meanest of them.' "'Oh, sire!' "'Let us understand one another, Monsieur Fouquet,' said the king haughtily. 
we no longer live in times when assassination was the only and the last resource kings held in reservation at extremity. No, heaven be praised. I have parliaments who sit and judge in my name, and I have scaffolds on which supreme authority is carried out. Fouquet turned pale. I will take the liberty of observing to your majesty that any proceedings instituted respecting these matters would bring down the greatest scandal upon the dignity of the throne. The august name of Anne of Austria must never be allowed to pass the lips of the people accompanied by a smile. Justice must be done, however, monsieur. Good sire, but royal blood must not be shed upon a scaffold. The royal blood? You believe that? cried the king, with fury in his voice, stamping his foot on the ground. This double birth is an invention, and in that invention particularly do I see Monsieur de Blais's crime. It is the crime I wish to punish rather than the violence or the insult. And punish it with death, sire? With death, yes, monsieur, I have said it. Sire, said the surintendant with firmness as he raised his head proudly, your majesty will take the life if you please, of your brother Philippe of France. That concerns you alone, and you will doubtless consult the Queen-Mother upon the subject. Whatever she may command will be perfectly correct. I do not wish to mix myself up in it, not even for the honour of your crown, but I have a favour to ask of you, and I beg to submit it to you. Speak, said the King, in no little degree agitated by his minister's last words, what do you require? The pardon of Monsieur d'Herblay and Monsieur du Vallon. My assassins? Two rebels, sire, that is all. Oh, I understand, then. You ask me to forgive your friends. My friends, said Fouquet, deeply wounded. Your friends, certainly but the safety of the state requires that an exemplary punishment should be inflicted on the guilty. I will not permit myself to remind your majesty that I have just restored you to liberty, and have saved your life. Monsieur, I will not allow myself to remind your majesty that had Monsieur d'Herblay wished to carry out his character of an assassin, he could very easily have assassinated your majesty this morning in the forest of Senar and all would have been over. The king started. A pistol bullet through the head, pursued Fouquet, and the disfigured features of Louis the Fourteenth, which no one could have recognized, would be Monsieur d'Herblay's complete and entire justification. The king turned pale and giddy at the bare idea of the danger he had escaped. If Monsieur d'Herblay, continued Fouquet, had been an assassin, he had no occasion to inform me of his plan in order to succeed. Freed from the real king, it would have been impossible in all futurity to guess the false. And if the usurper had been recognized by Anne of Austria, he would still have been her son. The usurper, as far as Monsieur d'Herblay's conscience was concerned, was still a king of the blood of Louis the Thirteenth. Moreover, the conspirator in that course would have had security secrecy impunity a pistol bullet would have procured him all that for the sake of heaven sire 
Grant me his forgiveness. The king, instead of being touched by the picture, so faithfully drawn in all details, of Aramis's generosity, felt himself most painfully and cruelly humiliated. His unconquerable pride revolted at the idea that a man had held suspended at the end of his finger the thread of his royal life. Every word that fell from Fouquet's lips, and which he thought most efficacious in procuring his friend's pardon, seemed to pour another drop of poison into the already ulcerated heart of Louis the Fourteenth. Nothing could bend or soften him. Addressing himself to Fouquet, he said, "'I really don't know, monsieur, why you should solicit the pardon of these men. What good is there in asking that which can be obtained without solicitation?' "'I do not understand you, sire.' "'It is not difficult, either. Where am I now?' "'In the Bastille, sire.' "'Yes, in a dungeon. I am looked upon as a madman, am I not?' "'Yes, sire.' "'And no one is known here but Machiali?' "'Certainly.' "'Well, change nothing in the position of affairs.' Let the poor madman rot between the slimy walls of the Bastille, and Monsieur de Blay and Monsieur de Vallon will stand in no need of my forgiveness. Their new king will absolve them. Your Majesty does me a great injustice, sire, and you are wrong, replied Fouquet dryly. I am not child enough, nor is Monsieur de Blay silly enough, to have omitted to make all these reflections. And if I had wished to make a new king, as you say, I had no occasion to come here to force open the gates and doors of the Bastille to free you from this place. That would show a want of even common sense. Your Majesty's mind is disturbed by anger. Otherwise you would be far from offending, groundlessly, the very one of your servants who has rendered you the most important service of all. Louis perceived that he had gone too far that the gates of the Bastille were still closed upon him, whilst by degrees the floodgates were gradually being opened, behind which the generous-hearted Fouquet had restrained his anger. "'I did not say that to humiliate you, heaven knows, monsieur,' he replied. "'Only you are addressing yourself to me in order to obtain a pardon, and I answer according to my conscience. And so, judging by my conscience, the criminals we speak of are not worthy of consideration or forgiveness. Fouquet was silent. What I do is as generous, added the king, as what you have done, for I am in your power. I will even say it is more generous, inasmuch as you place before me certain conditions upon which my liberty, my life, may depend, and to reject which is to make a sacrifice of both. I was wrong, certainly, replied Fouquet. Yes, I had the appearance of extorting a favour. I regret it, and entreat your Majesty's forgiveness. And you are forgiven, my dear Monsieur Fouquet, said the King with a smile which restored the serene expression of his features, which so many circumstances had altered during the preceding evening. I have my own forgiveness replied the minister, with some degree of persistence. But Monsieur d'Herblay and Monsieur du Vallon? They will never obtain theirs, as long as I live. 
replied the inflexible king. Do me the kindness not to speak of it again. Your majesty shall be obeyed. And you will bear me no ill will for it? Oh, no, sire, for I anticipated the event. You had anticipated that I should refuse to forgive those gentlemen? Certainly, and all my measures were taken in consequence. What do you mean to say? cried the king, surprised. Monsieur de Blay came, as may be said, to deliver himself into my hands. Monsieur de Blay left to me the happiness of saving my king and my country. I could not condemn Monsieur de Blay to death, nor could I, on the other hand, expose him to your majesty's justifiable wrath. It would have been just the same as if I had killed him myself. Well, and what have you done? Sire, I gave Monsieur d'Herblay the best horses in my stables, and for our start over all those your majesty might, probably, dispatch after him. Be it so, murmured the king. But still, the world is wide enough and large enough for those whom I may send to overtake your horses, notwithstanding the four-hour start which you have given to Monsieur d'Herblay. In giving him these four hours, sire, I knew I was giving him his life, and he will save his life. In what way? After having galloped as hard as possible, with the four hours' start, before your musketeers, he will reach my chateau of Belle-Isle, where I have given him a safe asylum. That may be, but you forget that you have made me a present of Belle-Isle. But not for you to arrest my friends— you take it back again, then? As far as that goes, yes, sire. My musketeers shall capture it, and the affair will be at an end. Neither your musketeers nor your whole army could take Belle-Isle, said Fouquet coldly. Belle-Isle is impregnable. The king became perfectly livid. A lightning flash seemed to dart from his eyes. Fouquet felt that he was lost but he was not one to shrink when the voice of honour spoke loudly within him. He bore the king's wrathful gaze. The others swallowed his rage, and after a few moments' silence said, "'Are we going to return to Vaux?' "'I am at your majesty's orders,' replied Fouquet, with a low bow. "'But I think that your majesty can hardly dispense with changing your clothes previous to appearing before your court.' "'We shall pass by the Louvre,' said the king. "'Come.' And they left the prison, passing before Besmeaux, who looked completely bewildered as he saw Marchiali once more leave, and in his helplessness tore out the major portion of his few remaining hairs. It was perfectly true, however, that Fouquet wrote and gave him an authority for the prisoner's release, and that the king wrote beneath it, "'Seen and approve, Louis.' a piece of madness that Besmeaux, incapable of putting two ideas together, acknowledged by giving himself a terrible blow on the forehead with his own fist. End of chapter Chapter 24 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. 
The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 24 The False King. In the meantime, usurped royalty was playing out its part bravely at Vaux. Philippe gave orders that for his petite levée, the grand entrée, already prepared to appear before the king, should be introduced. He determined to give this order notwithstanding the absence of Monsieur d'Herblay, who did not return. Our readers know the reason. But the prince, not believing that absence could be prolonged, wished, as all rash spirits do, to try his valour and his fortune, far from all protection and instruction. Another reason urged him to this. Anne of Austria was about to appear. The guilty mother was about to stand in the presence of her sacrificed son. Philippe was not willing, if he had a weakness, to render the man a witness of it before whom he was bound thenceforth to display so much strength. Philippe opened his folding doors, and several persons entered silently. Philippe did not stir whilst his valet de chambre dressed him. He had watched, the evening before, all the habits of his brother, and played the king in such a manner as to awaken no suspicion. He was thus completely dressed in hunting costume when he received his visitors. His own memory and the notes of Aramis announced everybody to him. First of all, Anne of Austria, to whom Monsieur gave his hand, and then Madame with Monsieur de Saint-Aignan. He smiled at seeing these countenances, but trembled on recognizing his mother. That still so noble and imposing figure, ravaged by pain, pleaded in his heart the cause of the famous queen who had immolated a child to reasons of state. He found his mother still handsome. He knew that Louis the Fourteenth loved her, and he promised himself to love her likewise, and not to prove a scourge to her old age. He contemplated his brother with a tenderness easily to be understood. The latter had usurped nothing, had cast no shades athwart his life. A separate tree, he allowed the stem to rise without heeding its elevation or majestic life. Philippe promised himself to be a kind brother to this prince, who required nothing but gold to minister to his pleasures. He bowed with a friendly air to Saint-Aignan, who was all reverences and smiles, and trembling held out his hand to Henrietta, his sister-in-law, whose beauty struck him but he saw in the eyes of that princess an expression of coldness which would facilitate, as he thought, their future relations. "'How much more easy,' thought he, "'it will be to be the brother of that woman than her gallant, if she evinces toward me a coldness that my brother could not have for her, but which is imposed upon me as a duty.' The only visit he dreaded at this moment was that of the queen. His heart, his mind— had just been shaken by so violent a trial, that, in spite of their firm temperament, they would not perhaps support another shock. Happily the Queen did not come. Then commenced, on the part of Anne of Austria, a political dissertation upon the welcome M. Fouquet had given to the House of France. She mixed up hostilities with compliments addressed to the King, and questions as to his health, with little maternal flatteries and diplomatic artifices. "'Well, my son,' said she, "'are you convinced with regard to Monsieur Fouquet?' "'Saint-Aignan,' said Philippe, "'have the goodness to go and inquire after the Queen.' At these words the first Philippe had pronounced aloud, 
the slight difference that there was between his voice and that of the king was sensible to maternal ears, and Anne of Austria looked earnestly at her son. Saint-Aignan left the room, and Philippe continued, "'Madame, I do not like to hear Monsieur Fouquet ill-spoken of. You know I do not, and you have even spoken well of him yourself.' "'That is true. Therefore I only question you on the state of your sentiments with respect to him.' Sire, said Henrietta, I, on my part, have always liked Monsieur Fouquet. He is a man of good taste, a superior man. A superintendent who is never sordid or niggardly, added Monsieur, and who pays in gold all the orders I have on him. Every one in this thinks too much of himself, and nobody for the state, said the old queen. Monsieur Fouquet, it is a fact. Monsieur Fouquet is ruining the state. Well, mother, replied Philippe in rather a lower key, do you likewise constitute yourself the buckler of Monsieur Colbert? How is that? replied the old queen, rather surprised. Why, in truth, replied Philippe, you speak that just as your old friend Madame de Chevreuse would speak. "'Why do you mention Madame de Chevreuse to me?' said she. "'And what sort of humour are you in to-day towards me?' Philippe continued. "'Is not Madame de Chevreuse always in league against somebody? "'Has not Madame de Chevreuse been to pay you a visit, mother?' "'Monsieur, you speak to me now in such a manner "'that I can almost fancy I am listening to your father.' My father did not like Madame de Chevreuse, and had good reason for not liking her, said the prince. For my part, I like her no better than he did, and if she thinks proper to come here as she formerly did, to sow divisions and hatreds, under the pretext of begging money, why— Well, what? said Anne of Austria, proudly, herself provoking the storm. Well— replied the young man firmly. I will drive Madame de Chevreuse out of my kingdom, and with her all who meddle with its secrets and mysteries. He had not calculated the effect of this terrible speech, or perhaps he wished to judge the effect of it, like those who, suffering from a chronic pain, and seeking to break the monotony of that suffering, touched their wound to procure a sharper pang. Anne of Austria was nearly fainting, her eyes, open but meaningless, ceased to see for several seconds. She stretched out her arms towards her other son, who supported and embraced her without fear of irritating the king. "'Sire,' murmured she, "'you are treating your mother very cruelly.' "'In what respect, madame?' replied he. "'I am only speaking of madame de Chevreuse.' Does my mother prefer Madame de Chevreuse to the security of the state and of my person? Well, then, Madame, I tell you Madame de Chevreuse has returned to France to borrow money, and that she has addressed herself to Monsieur Fouquet to sell him a certain secret. A certain secret? cried Anne of Austria. Concerning pretended robberies that Monsieur le Surintendant had committed, which is false added Philippe. Monsieur Fouquet rejected her offers with indignation, preferring the esteem of the king 
do complicity with such intriguers. Then Madame de Chevreuse sold the secret to Monsieur Colbert, and as she is insatiable, and was not satisfied with having extorted a hundred thousand crowns from a servant of the state, she has taken a still bolder flight, in search of sure sources of supply. Is that true, madame? You know all, sire, said the queen, more uneasy than irritated. Now, continued Philippe, I have good reasons to dislike this fury, who comes to my court to plan the shame of some and the ruin of others. If heaven has suffered certain crimes to be committed, and has concealed them in the shadow of its clemency, I will not permit Madame de Chevreuse to counteract the just designs of fate. The latter part of this speech had so agitated the Queen Mother that her son had pity on her. He took her hand and kissed it tenderly. He did not feel that in that kiss, given in spite of repulsion and bitterness of the heart, there was a pardon for eight years of suffering. Philippe allowed the silence of a moment to swallow the emotions that had just developed themselves. Then, with a cheerful smile, "'We will not go to-day,' said he. "'I have a plan.' And turning towards the door, he hoped to see Aramis, whose absence began to alarm him. The queen-mother wished to leave the room. "'Remain where you are, mother,' said he. "'I wish you to make your peace with Monsieur Fouquet.' "'I bear Monsieur Fouquet no ill-will. I only dreaded his prodigalities.' We will put that to rights, and will take nothing of the superintendent but his good qualities. "'What is your majesty looking for?' said Henrietta, seeing the eyes constantly turned towards the door, and wishing to let fly a little poisoned arrow at his heart, supposing he was so anxiously expecting either La Valliere or a letter from her. "'My sister,' said the young man, who had divined her thought, thanks to that marvellous perspicuity of which fortune was, from that time, about to allow him the exercise. My sister, I am expecting a most distinguished man, a most able counsellor, whom I wish to present to you all, recommending him to your good graces. Ah! Come in, then, D'Artagnan. What does your majesty wish? said D'Artagnan, appearing. Where is Monsieur le Bishop of Vannes, your friend? why sire i am waiting for him and he does not come let him be sought for d'artagnan remained for an instant stupefied but soon reflecting that aramis had left vaux privately on a mission from the king he concluded that the king wished to preserve the secret sire replied he does your majesty absolutely require monsieur d'herblay to be brought to you absolutely is not the word said Philippe. I do not want him so particularly as that. But if he can be found... I thought so, said D'Artagnan to himself. Is this Monsieur d'Herblay the Bishop of Vannes? Yes, madame. A friend of Monsieur Fouquet? Yes, madame, an old musketeer. Anne of Austria blushed. One of the four braves who formerly performed such prodigies. The old queen repented of having wished to bite. She broke off the conversation in order to preserve the rest of her teeth. "'Whatever may be your choice, sire,' said she, 
I have no doubt it will be excellent. All bowed in support of that sentiment. You will find in him, continued Philippe, the depth and penetration of Monsieur de Richelieu, without the avarice of Monsieur de Mazarin. A prime minister, sire, said Monsieur in a fright. I will tell you all about that brother, but it is strange that Monsieur de Blay is not here. He called out. Let Monsieur Fouquet be informed that I wish to speak to him. Oh, before you, before you, do not retire. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan returned, bringing satisfactory news of the Queen, who only kept her bed from precaution, and to have strength to carry out the King's wishes. Whilst everybody was seeking Monsieur Fouquet and Aramis, the new King quietly continued his experiments, and everybody, family, officers, servants, had not the least suspicion of his identity. His air, his voice, and manners were so like the King's. On his side, Philippe, applying to all countenances the accurate descriptions and keynotes of character supplied by his accomplice Aramis, conducted himself so as not to give birth to a doubt in the minds of those who surrounded him. Nothing from that time could disturb the usurper. With what strange facility had Providence just reversed the loftiest fortune of the world to substitute the lowliest in its stead? Philippe admired the goodness of God with regard to himself, and seconded it with all the resources of his admirable nature. But he felt, at times, something like a spectre gliding between him and the rays of his new glory. Aramis did not appear. The conversation had languished in the royal family. Philippe, preoccupied, forgot to dismiss his brother and Madame Henrietta. The latter was astonished, and began by degrees to lose all patience. Anne of Austria stooped toward her son's ear, and addressed some words to him in Spanish. Philippe was completely ignorant of that language, and grew pale at this unexpected obstacle. But, as if the spirit of the imperturbable Aramis had covered him with his infallibility, instead of appearing disconcerted, Philippe arose. "'Well, what?' said Anne of Austria. "'What is all that noise?' said Philippe, turning round towards the door of the second staircase. And a voice was heard saying, "'This way, this way, a few steps more, sire.' "'The voice of Monsieur Fouquet,' said D'Artagnan, who was standing close to the Queen-mother. "'Then Monsieur d'Herblay cannot be far off,' added Philippe. But he then saw what he little thought to have beheld so near to him, all eyes were turned towards the door at which M. Fouquet was expected to enter, but it was not M. Fouquet who entered. A terrible cry resounded from all corners of the chamber, a painful cry uttered by the king and all present. It is given to but few men, even those whose destiny contains the strangest elements, and accidents the most wonderful, to contemplate such a spectacle similar to that which presented itself in the royal chamber at that moment. The half-closed shutters only admitted the entrance of an uncertain light passing through thick violet velvet curtains lined with silk. In this soft shade, the eyes were by degrees dilated, and every one present saw others rather with imagination than with actual sight. There could not, however, escape, in these circumstances, one of the surrounding details and the new object which presented itself appeared as luminous as though it shone out in full sunlight. 
So it happened with Louis the Fourteenth, when he showed himself, pale and frowning, in the doorway of the secret stairs. The face of Fouquet appeared behind him, stamped with sorrow and determination. The queen-mother, who perceived Louis the Fourteenth and who held the hand of Philippe, uttered a cry of which we have spoken, as if she beheld a phantom. Monsieur was bewildered, and kept turning his head in astonishment from one to the other. Madame made a step forward, thinking she was looking at the form of her brother-in-law reflected in a mirror, and in fact the illusion was possible. The two princes, both pale as death, for we renounce the hope of being able to describe the fearful state of Philippe, trembling, clenching their hands convulsively, measured each other with looks, and darted their glances, sharp as poignards, at each other. Silent, panting, bending forward, they appeared as if about to spring upon an enemy. The unheard-of resemblance of countenance, gesture, shape, height, even to the resemblance of costume, produced by chance, for Louis the Fourteenth had been to the Louvre, and put on a violet-coloured dress, the perfect analogy of the two princes, completed the consternation of Anne of Austria. And yet she did not at once guess the truth. There are misfortunes in life so truly dreadful that no one will at first accept them. People rather believe in the supernatural and the impossible. Louis had not reckoned on these obstacles. He expected that he had only to appear to be acknowledged. A living son, he could not endure the suspicion of equality with any one. He did not admit that every torch should not become darkness at the instant he shone out with his conquering ray. At the aspect of Philippe, then, he was perhaps more terrified than any one round him, and his silence, his immobility, were this time a concentration and a calm which precede the violent explosions of concentrated passion. But Fouquet! Who shall paint his emotion and stupor in presence of this living portrait of his master? Fouquet thought Aramis was right, that this newly arrived was a king as pure in his race as the other, and that, for having repudiated all participation in this coup d'état, so skilfully got up by the general of the Jesuits, he must be a mad enthusiast, unworthy of ever dipping his hands in political grand strategy work. And then it was the blood of Louis the Thirteenth which Fouquet was sacrificing to the blood of Louis the Thirteenth. It was to a selfish ambition he was sacrificing a noble ambition. To the right of keeping, he sacrificed the right of having. The whole extent of his fault was revealed to him at simple sight of the pretender. All that passed in the mind of Fouquet was lost upon the persons present. He had five minutes to focus meditation on this point of conscience. Five minutes, that is to say, five ages, during which the two kings and their families scarcely found energy to breathe after so terrible a shock. D'Artagnan, leaning against the wall, in front of Fouquet, with his hand to his brow, asked himself the cause of such a wonderful prodigy. He could not have said at once why he doubted, but he knew assuredly that he had reason to doubt, and that in this meeting of the two Louis the Fourteenths lay all the doubt and difficulty that during late days had rendered the conduct of Aramis so suspicious to the musketeer. These ideas were, however, enveloped in a haze, a veil of mystery. 
the actors in this assembly seemed to swim in the vapours of a confused waking. Suddenly Louis the Fourteenth, more impatient and more accustomed to command, ran to one of the shutters, which he opened, tearing the curtains in his eagerness. A flood of living light entered the chamber, and made Philippe draw back to the alcove. Louis seized upon this movement with eagerness, and addressing himself to the queen, "'My mother,' said he, "'do you not acknowledge your son, since every one here has forgotten his king?' Anne of Austria started, and raised her arms towards heaven, without being able to articulate a single word. "'My mother,' said Philippe, with a calm voice, "'do you not acknowledge your son?' And this time, in his turn, Louis drew back. As to Anne of Austria, struck suddenly in head and heart with fell remorse, she lost her equilibrium. No one aiding her, for all were petrified, she sank back in her fauteuil, breathing a weak, trembling sigh. Louis could not endure the spectacle and the affront. He bounded towards D'Artagnan, over whose brain a vertigo was stealing, and who staggered as he caught at the door for support. "'A moi, mousquetaire!' said he. "'Look us in the face, and say which is the paler, he or I.' This cry roused D'Artagnan, and stirred in his heart the fibres of obedience. He shook his head, and without more hesitation he walked straight up to Philippe, on whose shoulder he laid his hand, saying, "'Monsieur, you are my prisoner.' Philippe did not raise his eyes toward heaven, nor stir from the spot, where he seemed nailed to the floor, his eye intently fixed upon the king his brother. He reproached him with a sublime silence for all misfortunes past, all tortures to come. Against this language of the soul the king felt he had no power. He cast down his eyes, dragging away precipitately his brother and sister, forgetting his mother, sitting motionless within three paces of the son whom she left a second time to be contemned to death. Philippe approached Anne of Austria, and said to her, in a soft and nobly agitated voice, "'If I were not your son, I should curse you, my mother, for having rendered me so unhappy.' D'Artagnan felt a shudder pass through the marrow of his bones. He bowed respectfully to the young prince, and said as he bent, "'Excuse me, Monseigneur, I am but a soldier, and my oaths are his who has just left the chamber.' "'Thank you, Monsieur d'Artagnan. What has become of Monsieur d'Herblay?' "'Monsieur d'Herblay is in safety, Monseigneur,' said a voice behind them. "'And no one, while I live and am free, shall cause a hair to fall from his head.' "'Monsieur Fouquet,' said the prince, smiling sadly. "'Pardon me, Monseigneur,' said Fouquet, kneeling. "'But he who has just gone out from hence was my guest.' "'Here are,' murmured Philippe, with a sigh, "'brave friends and good hearts. "'They make me regret the world. "'On, Monsieur d'Artagnan, I follow you.' At the moment the captain of the musketeers was about to leave the room with his prisoner, Colbert appeared, and, after remitting an order from the king to d'Artagnan, retired. D'Artagnan read the paper, and then crushed it at his hand with rage. "'What is it?' asked the prince. "'Read, Monseigneur,' replied the musketeer. Philippe read the following words, hastily traced by the hand of the king. 
Monsieur d'Artagnan will conduct the prisoner to the Ile Sainte-Marguerite. He will cover his face with an iron visor, which the prisoner shall never raise except at peril of his life. That is just, said Philippe, with resignation. I am ready. Aramis was right, said Fouquet in a low voice to the musketeer. This one is every whit as much a king as the other. More so, replied D'Artagnan. He wanted only you and me. End of chapter. Chapter 25 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 25 In which Porthos thinks he is pursuing a duchy Aramis and Porthos, having profited by the time granted them by Fouquet, did honour to the French cavalry by their speed. Porthos did not clearly understand on what kind of mission he was forced to display so much velocity, but as he saw Aramis spurring on furiously, he, Porthos, spurred on in the same way. They had soon in this manner placed twelve leagues between them and Vaux. They were then obliged to change horses, and organize a sort of post-arrangement. It was during a relay that Porthos ventured to interrogate Aramis discreetly. Hush, replied the latter. Know only that our fortune depends on our speed. As if Porthos had still been the musketeer, without a sou or a maya of 1626, he pushed forward. That magic word, fortune, always means something in the human ear. It means enough for those who have nothing. It means too much for those who have enough. I shall be made a duke, said Porthos aloud. He was speaking to himself. That is possible, replied Aramis, smiling after his own fashion, as Porthos' horse passed him. Aramis felt, notwithstanding, as though his brain were on fire. The activity of the body had not yet succeeded in subduing that of the mind. All there is of raging passion, mental toothache or mortal threat, raged, gnawed, and grumbled in the thoughts of the unhappy prelate. His countenance exhibited visible traces of this rude combat. Free on the highway to abandon himself to every impression of the moment, Aramis did not fail to swear at every start of his horse, at every inequality in the road. Pale, at times inundated with boiling sweats, then again dry and icy, he flogged his horses till the blood streamed from their sides. Porthos, whose dominant fault was not sensibility, groaned at this. Thus travelled they on for eight long hours, and then arrived at Orléans. It was four in the afternoon. Aramis, on observing this, judged that nothing showed pursuit to be a possibility. It would be without example that a troop capable of taking him and Porthos should be furnished with relays sufficient to perform forty leagues in eight hours. Thus, admitting pursuit, which was not at all manifest, the fugitives were five hours in advance of their pursuers. Aramis thought that there might be no imprudence in taking a little rest, but that to continue would make the matter more certain. Twenty leagues more, performed with the same rapidity, twenty more leagues devoured, and no one, 
not even D'Artagnan, could overtake the enemies of the king. Aramis felt obliged, therefore, to inflict upon Porthos the pain of mounting on horseback again. They rode on till seven o'clock in the evening, and had only one more post more between them and Blois. But here a diabolical accident alarmed Aramis greatly. There were no horses at the post. The prelate asked himself by what infernal machinations his enemies had succeeded in depriving him of the means of going further. He, who never recognized chance as a deity, who found a cause for every accident, preferred believing that the refusal of the postmaster, at such an hour, in such a country, was the consequence of an order emanating from above, an order given with a view of stopping short the kingmaker in the midst of his flight. But at the moment he was about to fly into a passion, so as to procure either a horse or an explanation, he was struck with the recollection that the Comte de la Fere lived in the neighbourhood. "'I am not travelling said he. I do not want horses for a whole stage. Find me two horses to go and pay a visit to a nobleman of my acquaintance who resides near this place. What nobleman? asked the postmaster. Monsieur le Comte de la Fere. Oh, replied the postmaster, uncovering with respect, a very worthy nobleman. But whatever may be my desire to make myself agreeable to him, I cannot furnish you with horses, for all mine are engaged by Monsieur le Duc de Beaufort. Indeed, said Aramis, much disappointed. Only, continued the postmaster, if you will put up with a little carriage I have, I will harness an old blind horse who has still his legs left, and peradventure will draw you to the house of Monsieur le Comte de la Fere. It is worth the louis, said Aramis. No, monsieur, such a ride is worth no more than a crown. That is what Monsieur Grimaud, the Comte's intendant, always pays me when he makes use of that carriage, and I should not wish the Comte de la Fere to have to reproach me with having imposed on one of his friends. "'As you please,' said Aramis, particularly as regards disobliging the Comte de la Fere. Only I think I have a right to give you a louis for your idea.' "'Oh, doubtless,' replied the postmaster with delight and he himself harnessed the ancient horse to the creaking carriage. In the meantime Porthos was curious to behold. He imagined he had discovered a clue to the secret, and he felt pleased, because a visit to Athos, in the first place, promised him much satisfaction, and, in the next, gave him the hope of finding at the same time a good bed and good supper. The master, having got the carriage ready, ordered one of his men to drive the strangers to La Fere. Porthos took his seat by the side of Aramis, whispering in his ear, "'I understand.' "'Aha!' said Aramis. "'And what do you understand, my friend?' "'We are going on the part of the king to make some great proposal to Athos.' "'Pooh!' said Aramis. "'You need tell me nothing about it,' added the worthy Porthos, endeavouring to reseat himself so as to avoid the jolting. You need tell me nothing. I shall guess. Well, <laughs> do, my friend. Guess away. They arrived at Athos's dwelling about nine o'clock in the evening, favoured by a splendid moon. This cheerful light rejoiced Porthos beyond expression, but Aramis appeared annoyed by it to an equal degree. He could not help showing something of this to Porthos, who replied, 
I, I, I guess how it is. The mission is a secret one. Those were his last words in the carriage. The driver interrupted him by saying, Gentlemen, we have arrived. Porthos and his companion alighted before the gate of the little chateau, where we are about to meet again our old acquaintances, Athos and Bragelonne, the latter of whom had disappeared since this discovery of the infidelity of La Valliere. If there be one saying truer than another, it is this. Great griefs contain within themselves the germ of consolation. This painful wound, inflicted upon Raoul, had drawn him nearer to his father again, and God knows how sweet were the consolations which flowed from the eloquent mouth and generous heart of Athos. The wound was not cicatrized, but Athos, by dint of conversing with his son, and mixing a little more of his life with that of the young man, had brought him to understand that this pang of a first infidelity is necessary to every human existence, and that no one has loved without encountering it. Raoul listened, again and again, but never understood. Nothing replaces in the deeply afflicted heart the remembrance and thought of the beloved object. Raoul then replied to the reasoning of his father, "'Monsieur, all that you tell me is true. I believe that no one has suffered in the affections of the heart so much as you have. But you are a man too great by reason of intelligence, and too severely tried by adverse fortune, not to allow for the weakness of the soldier who suffers for the first time. I am paying a tribute that will not be paid a second time. Permit me to plunge myself so deeply in my grief that I may forget myself in it, that I may drown even my reason in it. Raoul, Raoul, listen, monsieur, never shall I accustom myself to the idea that Louise, the chastest and most innocent of women, has been able to so basely deceive a man so honest and so true a lover as myself. Never can I persuade myself that I see that sweet and noble mask change into a hypocritical, lascivious face. Louise lost! Louise infamous! Ah! Monseigneur, that idea is much more cruel to me than Raoul abandoned, Raoul unhappy. Athos then employed the heroic remedy. He defended Louise against Raoul, and justified her perfidy by her love. A woman who would have yielded to a king because he is a king, said he, would desire to be styled infamous. But Louise loves Louis. Young, both, they have forgotten. He his rank, she her vows. Love absolves everything, Raoul. The two young people love each other with sincerity. And when he had dealt the severe poignard thrust, Athos, with a sigh, saw Raoul bound away beneath the rankling wound, and fly to the thickest recesses of the wood, or the solitude of his chamber, whence, an hour after, he would return, pale, trembling, but subdued. Then, coming up to Athos with a smile, he would kiss his hand, like the dog who, having been beaten, caresses a respected master to redeem his fault. Raoul redeemed nothing but his weakness, and only confessed his grief. Thus passed away the days that followed that scene, in which Athos had so violently shaken the indomitable pride of the king. Never, when conversing with his son, did he make any allusion to that scene, 
Never did he give him the details of that vigorous lecture, which might perhaps have consoled the young man, by showing him his rival humbled. Athos did not wish that the offended lover should forget the respect due to his king. And when Bragelonne, ardent, angry, and melancholy, spoke with contempt of royal words, of the equivocal faith which certain madmen drew from promises that emanate from thrones, when, passing over two centuries, with that rapidity of a bird that traverses a narrow strait to go from one continent to the other, Raoul ventured to predict the time in which kings would be esteemed as less than other men. Athos said to him, in his serene, persuasive voice, "'You are right, Raoul. All that you say will happen. Kings will lose their privileges, as stars which have survived their eons lose their splendor. But when that moment comes, Raoul, we shall be dead. And remember well what I say to you. In this world, all men, women, and kings, must live for the present. We can only live for the future, for God. This was the manner in which Athos and Raoul were, as usual, conversing, and walking backwards and forwards in the long alley of limes in the park, when the bell which served to announce to the comte either the hour of dinner or the arrival of a visitor was rung. And without attaching any importance to it, he turned towards the house with his son, and at the end of the alley they found themselves in the presence of Aramis and Porthos. End of chapter Chapter twenty six of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter twenty six The Last Adieu. Raoul uttered a cry and affectionately embraced Porthos. Aramis and Athos embraced like old men and this embrace itself being a question for Aramis, he immediately said, "'My friend, we have not long to remain with you.' "'Ah!' said the Comte. "'Only time to tell you of my good fortune,' interrupted Porthos. "'Ah!' said Raoul. Athos looked silently at Aramis, whose sombre air had already appeared to him very little in harmony with the good news Porthos hinted. "'What is the good fortune that has happened to you? Let us hear it,' said Raoul, with a smile. "'The king has made me a duke,' said the worthy Porthos, with an air of mystery, in the ear of the young man. "'A duke by brevet!' But the asides of Porthos were always loud enough to be heard by everybody. His murmurs were in the diapason of ordinary roaring. Athos heard him, and uttered an exclamation which made Aramis start. The latter took Aramis by the arm, and, after having asked Porthos's permission to say a word to his friend in private, "'My dear Athos,' he began, "'you see me overwhelmed with grief and trouble.' "'What grief and trouble, my dear friend?' cried the Comte. "'Oh, what?' "'In two words. I have conspired against the King. That conspiracy has failed, and, at this moment, I am doubtless pursued.' You are pursued! A conspiracy! Eh! Hey, my friend, what do you tell me? The saddest truth. 
I am entirely ruined.' "'Well, but Porthos, this title of Duke, what does all that mean?' "'That is the subject of my severest pain. That is the deepest of my wounds. I have, believing in infallible success, drawn Porthos into my conspiracy. He threw himself into it, as you know he would do, with all his strength, without knowing what he was about.' and now he is as much compromised as myself, as completely ruined as I am. "'Good God!' And Athos turned toward Porthos, who was smiling complacently. "'I must make you acquainted with the whole. Listen to me,' continued Aramis, and he related the history as we know it. Athos, during the recital, several times felt the sweat break from his forehead. "'It was a great idea.' said he, but a great error, for which I am punished, Athos. Therefore I will not tell you my entire thought. Tell it, nevertheless. It is a crime, a capital crime, I know it is, les majestes. Porthos, poor Porthos! What would you advise me to do? Success, as I have told you, was certain. Monsieur Fouquet is an honest man. And I a fool for having so ill-judged him, said Aramis. Oh, the wisdom of man! Oh, millstone that grinds the world! And which is one day stopped by a grain of sand which has fallen, no one knows how, between its wheels. Say by a diamond, Aramis. But the thing is done. How do you think of acting? I am taking away Porthos. The king will never believe that that worthy man has acted innocently. He never can believe that Porthos has thought he was serving the king, whilst acting as he has done. His head would pay my fault. It shall not, must not, be so. You are taking him away? Whither? To Belle-Isle at first. That is an impregnable place of refuge. Then I have the sea, and a vessel to pass over into England, where I have many relations. You, in England? Yes, or else in Spain, where I have still more. But, our excellent Porthos, you ruin him, for the king will confiscate all his property. All is provided for. I know how, when once in Spain— to reconcile myself with Louis the Fourteenth, and restore Porthos to favour. "'You have credit, seemingly, Aramis,' said Athos, with a discreet air. "'Much, and at the service of my friends.' These words were accompanied by a warm pressure of the hand. "'Thank you,' replied the Comte. "'And while we are on this head,' said Aramis, you also are a malcontent. You also, rule have griefs to lay to the king. Follow our example. Pass over into Belle-Isle. Then we shall see, I guarantee upon my honour, that in a month there will be war between France and Spain on the subject of this son of Louis the Thirteenth, who is an infant likewise, and whom France detains inhumanly. Now— as Louis the Fourteenth would have no inclination for a war on that subject, I will answer for an arrangement, the result of which must bring greatness to Porthos and to me, 
and a duchy in France to you, who are already a grandee of Spain. Will you join us? No. For my part, I prefer having something to reproach the king with. It is a pride natural to my race to pretend to a superiority over royal races. Doing what you propose, I should become the obliged of the king. I should certainly be the gainer on that ground, but I should be a loser in my conscience. No, thank you. Then give me two things, Athos. Your absolution. Oh, I give it to you if you really wish to avenge the weak and oppressed against the oppressor. That is sufficient for me, said Aramis, with a blush which was lost in the obscurity of the night. And now give me your two best horses to gain the second post, as I have been refused any under the pretext of the Duc de Beaufort being travelling in this country. You shall have the two best horses, Aramis, and again I recommend poor Porthos strongly to your care. Oh, I have no fear on that score. One word more. Do you think I am manoeuvring for him as I ought? The evil being committed, yes, for the king would not pardon him, and you have, whatever may be said, always a supporter in Monsieur Fouquet, who will not abandon you, he being himself compromised, notwithstanding his heroic action. You are right, and that is why, instead of gaining the sea at once, which would proclaim my fear and guilt, that is why I remain upon French ground. But Belle-Isle will be for me whatever ground I wish it to be, English, Spanish, or Roman. All will depend, with me, on the standard I shall think proper to unfurl. How so? It was I who fortified Belle-Isle, and, so long as I defend it, nobody can take Belle-Isle from me. And then, as you have said just now, Monsieur Fouquet is there. Belle-Isle will not be attacked without the signature of Monsieur Fouquet. That is true. Nevertheless be prudent. The king is both cunning and strong. Aramis smiled. I again recommend Porthos to you, repeated the Count, with a sort of cold persistence. Whatever becomes of me, Count, replied Aramis in the same tone, our brother Porthos will fare as I do, or better. Athos bowed whilst pressing the hand of Aramis, and turned to embrace Porthos with emotion. I was born lucky, was I not? murmured the latter transported with happiness as he folded his cloak round him. "'Come, my dear friend,' said Aramis. Raoul had gone out to give orders for the saddling of the horses. The group was already divided. Athos saw his two friends on the point of departure, and something like a mist passed before his eyes and weighed upon his heart. "'It is strange,' thought he, "'whence comes the inclination I feel to embrace Porthos once more?' At that moment Porthos turned round, and he came towards his old friend with open arms. This last endearment was tender, as in youth, as in times when hearts were warm, life-happy. And then Porthos mounted his horse. Aramis came back once more to throw his arms round the neck of Athos. The latter watched them along the high-road, 
elongated by the shade, in their white cloaks. Like phantoms they seemed to enlarge on their departure from the earth, and it was not in the mist, but in the declivity of the ground that they disappeared. At the end of the perspective, both seemed to have given a spring with their feet, which made them vanish as if evaporated into cloudland. Then Athos, with a very heavy heart, returned towards the house, saying to Bragelonne, Raoul, I don't know what it is that has just told me that I have seen those two for the last time. It does not astonish me, monsieur, that you should have such a thought, replied the young man, for I have at this moment the same, and think also that I shall never see messieurs du Vallon and d'Herblay again. Oh, you, replied the count, you speak like a man rendered sad by a different cause. You see everything in black. You are young, and if you chance never to see those old friends again, it will be because they no longer exist in the world in which you have yet so many years to pass. But I... Raoul shook his head sadly, and leaned upon the shoulder of the Count, without either of them finding another word in their hearts which were ready to overflow. All at once, a noise of horses and voices, from the extremity of the road to Blois, attracted their attention that way. Flambeau-bearers shook their torches merrily among the trees of their route, and turned round from time to time, to avoid distancing the horsemen who followed them. These flames, this noise, this dust of a dozen richly caparisoned horses, formed a strange contrast, in the middle of the night, with the melancholy and almost funereal disappearance of the two shadows of Aramis and Porthos. Athos went towards the house but he had hardly reached the parterre, when the entrance-gate appeared in a blaze. All the flambeaux stopped, and appeared to inflame the road. A cry was heard of, "'Monsieur le Duc de Beaufort!' And Athos sprang towards the door of his house. But the Duke had already alighted from his horse, and was looking around him. "'I am here, Monseigneur,' said Athos. "'Ah! Good evening, dear Count,' said the Prince with that frank cordiality which won him so many hearts. "'Is it too late for a friend?' "'Ah, my dear prince, come in,' said the Count. And, Monsieur de Beaufort leaning on the arm of Athos, they entered the house, followed by Raoul, who walked respectfully and modestly among the officers of the prince, with several of whom he was acquainted. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.